Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. Liberty's leave policy was tremendous. Having the ability to take 16 weeks off, fully paid to bond with my child, was an incredible experience. At Liberty Mutual, you can find a career that supports you at every step, even baby steps. We offer up to 16 weeks parental leave for new moms and dads. And because not everyone's pathway to parenthood looks the same, we offer robust fertility, surrogacy, and adoption benefits too. Learn more at LibertyMutualCareers.com and pursue your tomorrow today. Hi, this is Steve. Now, I take every episode of The Cinephile seriously, but while I'm sometimes stressed about getting all my prep done in time or worried I'll miss some crucial piece of information, I'm never nervous about the actual recording. The fact is, sitting down to talk with John is the fun part of doing the show, and after five years, I'm confident that we'll always have a good conversation. This week, however, I am nervous. In fact, I'm downright scared because this week, we're not talking about a beloved classic or fan favorite. This week, on Sunday, August 29th at 4 p.m. Pacific time on our YouTube channel, we'll be talking about my films. My independent feature, The Assistant, starring Joe Montaigne, Jane Seymour, and Stacey Keach, and the documentary I did a few years later, Great White Shark, Beyond the Cage of Fear. It's not that I'm not proud of these movies. I am, in fact, very proud. It's just that... I've spent the last five years talking about great filmmakers, and in a few days, I'm going to find myself in the very strange position of talking about my own work. 
Fortunately, as always, I know John has my back. He's interviewed dozens of filmmakers over the years, and I know he'll ask great questions about the films, the process of making them, and the hard lessons they taught me. And yes, I'm not going to lie. One of the reasons we're doing this is that I want more people to see my movies. So if you're interested in Beyond the Cage of Fear, you can find it for free on Amazon Prime. And if you want to watch The Assistance, it's available on our YouTube channel for the exact same low price. And if you happen to support the show on Patreon.com slash The Cinephiles, right now you could be listening to John and I talk about movies that left us absolutely speechless. So that's Movies That Left Us Speechless on Patreon and a live show on my films, The Assistance and Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear on Sunday, August 29th at 4 p.m. Pacific time on our YouTube channel, where you might even get to see a few surprise guests. By the way, I'm not kidding. I really am nervous about this one, but I'm also very excited. And welcome to another episode of the Cinephiles Live here on the Cinephiles YouTube channel. I am the outlaw John Roca, one of the co-hosts of the Cinephiles, joined as always by the gentleman who does the research, who co-hosts the show, made the whole thing happen, and he is the focus of attention today with his films, The Assistance and Beyond the Cage of Fear. Great White, uh, the great Steve Morris. How are you, Steve? I'm good, and I absolutely love that little intro you did. I've never seen that before. That was really cool. It's great. <laughs> Well, you should tell my girlfriend because I spent an hour yelling at the computer (laughs) trying to get everything to be scored away and put it right, laying everything on top of itself, uh, but missing one more thing. And I think I could jazz it up just a little bit more, but that's just me and that's how I am about these things. But yeah, I felt like we never had an intro for the show, so I thought I'd create one this afternoon and I'm glad you like it. Steve means a lot. Um, And ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us here on another episode of Cinephiles Live. We've been doing these every now kind of giving a little bit of a break to the show so we can re- so we can connect with you all on a live basis more consistently uh, and keep providing you all the other shows that we do but this is a way to kind of give us a little bit of a break and also connect with you all it means a lot to us and today as i said just a few seconds ago we are going to be talking about steve morris's 2009 feature called the assistance it's a film that he spent a lot of time making uh, you know, you've heard, you've seen him mention it numerous times on the show, so we're going to talk about that, and also Steve wanted to talk about his uh, open the floor rather for anybody to talk about a, uh, is a great white beyond the cage of fear, great, great uh, white shark beyond the cage of fear. Sorry, great white shark beyond the cage of fear, uh, and uh, he's going to talk about that as well. We're going to have some special guests possibly showing up. You know, you never count your chickens until they hatch, so I don't want to say who they are just yet. But if they show up, trust me, it's going to be worth it. We're going to spend a little bit of time with them, and with those of you who are joining us live. Uh, the stream labs are open and the super chats are open. So please feel free to send in some support and some love to us here. And especially to Steve Morris as he's going to be talking about his work today from uh, 2009, the assistance and uh, great white shark beyond the cage of fear. Steve, uh, we've also got pa- patron questions. We're going to get to as well from a number of you all who sent in questions. So it's going to be a fun, fun time hanging out with all of us, probably about 90 minutes, maybe a little bit more depending on how, how things go in the discussion. But, Steve, uh, what do you want to say to start off a show like this? The first thing I want to say is thank you, John. I really, I I know this is like, 
We're going way outside what we normally do on the cinephiles. <laughs> we, we even are breaking one of the basic rules, which is one of our basic rules was, unlike Great other point. shows, we're not going to have people on to talk about their own work. We want people right. on to talk about work that they love. And this is none of those things. This is clearly be, being all about me, which is something I'm not entirely comfortable <laughs> with. But I, I really, really am grateful that you're giving me the opportunity to talk about this movie that i'm really proud of so yeah so thank yeah. you very much and to, we're going to talk about it we're going to, we're going to get into some stuff there might be some questions about like why'd you make this decision why'd you make that decision but we're also going to get into the history of the movie and what the overall result of it was for you how it changed your life we're also going to include and, and for those of you who don't know the movie is free on youtube there for people there's already had thirty-seven thousand views over the last few years so it's a film that people have watched uh, in large numbers so if you're interested in it you haven't seen it after we're done with our show today, maybe it'll give you more motivation to go watch it for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, without further ado, uh, let's get into it, Steve. Uh, make sure I don't have a... Okay, let's get into it, Steve. Steve. So this is The Assistants, 2009. So many people involved here. As you see above our heads, you were able to land uh, Joe Mantegna, Jane Seymour, and Stacey Keach in this. But also a young group of actors led by Chris Connors, Jack Ryder, Michael Grant Terry as Carl, Kathleen Early as Sarah, who has been on the show in years past, uh, and so is Michael Grant Terry. That's right, yep. he's been on the show as well. Aaron Himmelstein uh, as Ben, Tate Hanyok as Alex, Peter Douglas as Bill. It's I think that's the whole kind of main young cast. Yeah, that's cast. the gang. Uh, and plus, then, uh, yeah, go right. ahead. No, no, and oh, then plus- Ryko Aylesworth is there as Cassie, Jonathan Bennett as, as, as Zach, right. and uh, Joe Hernandez-Kalski as Jamie Nash, and our own friend Josh Haber doing a small part there uh, with Stacey Keach as one of the fellow trash men or garbage men as you might say uh also we're, we might be having on the show or we've got on the show uh the uh, cinematographer aaron torres is going to come on a little bit later to talk about how he approached uh lighting and shooting this with you working in conjunction with you you wrote produced directed this film and i remember being at one of the readings for this early on in the process so talk to me about this product because this film is a really interesting film about assistants banding together to kind of trick these people they work for into green lighting a film and getting themselves employed on the film because they're they came out to be filmmakers and they had lost uh, that kind of uh, impetus and they were lost in these assistant jobs uh, these uh, helper jobs and they weren't doing what they really wanted to do which was to make films and this the basic crux of this film is about them getting together led uh led by uh jack right of the their producer friend to be able to put this all together and some really tough moments at the end of the film so tell me what was the genesis of this script because clearly you've written a number of scripts what motivated you to dive into this one well one thing that's interesting is for the most part you know people say write what you know and i never did that I wrote things that were all about things that were not me for the Mm -hmm. most part. Um, And this was the most writing about my life and people that I know of anything Mm -hmm. I had ever done. Um, And it's, it came from a whole bunch of different places. The first was right out of college. I was at a job as the personal assistant to Joe Chaikin, who is a famous theater director, worked with Sam Mm Shepard, founder of the open theater. And he had had a stroke and was aphasic. So it meant that he couldn't speak very well. Oh, wow. And I was this 21, 22 year old kid. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly had access to his social security number, all his medical <laughs> records. I had his address book. At one point, he wanted to direct a production of Waiting for Godot. And Samuel Beckett was still alive and they were friends. So he wrote a handwritten note that said, Dear Sam, want to do Godot? 
love Joe. And <laughs> Beckett wrote back to me, and yeah. I got this letter from Samuel Beckett in his own handwriting saying, mm. Dear Joe, anything you want, love Sam. Nice. You know, and it was just like such a weird. Here I'm this total nobody who mm-hmm. suddenly, if I, that was when I first went, man, if I wanted to, I could really mess with these people mm-hmm. because everything was going through me, you know, all, everything that they knew about what that Joe knew about what was going on was because that's what I told him was what was going on. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the very beginning of the idea. And then of course, knowing uh, my own, my own personal stories going through the development process and me, having meetings with executives and having scripts out there. My other friends, I heard just horror stories after horror stories of this process because, spoiler alert, Hollywood is an insane place. <laughs> yes, it, it doesn't make a lot of it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, um, I had other friends who were uh, personal assistants, and then the biggest thing is that, in a lot of ways, these characters they're all me, with mm-hmm. the possible exception of Bill and the arguments they're having, and the frustrations and the depressions and the uh self-doubt and all of that that's that's me you wait, know, wait that's are you saying all the characters represent a a, a, a side of your personality or your who you are yeah. as a person oh wow i mean i mean they're characters okay. they're fictional well um, they, yeah. i am not i am not them exactly mm-hmm. but carl arguing with sarah and carl being the cynical one who says you know who has a very dark view of how the world works and sarah mm-hmm. being the idealist and maybe Sarah's idealism is a cover for her fear. And maybe Carl's cynicism is a cover for him not wanting to put himself out there. Hmm. That's me. You know what I mean? Like the, the, those are aspects. That's a debate I have in my head. Yeah. You know, the Jack feeling like, you know, the, the geeky editor who loves film knowledge. That's it. I'm not Alex. I'm a different person from that. But that's right. also aspects of my personality. Jack, the person who is making the project happen and feels responsible for the people and his friends that he's bringing along and not failing. That's me. You know, like, does that mean I'm Jack? No. Does that mean I'm Carl or Sarah or Alex? No. But, but emotionally, a lot of what I was going through is, is, is that, you know, because I was a person who was frustrated, who thought I was going to be successful and was coming up against Hollywood Mm -hmm. and was growing older and realizing I maybe wasn't who I thought I was and my dreams weren't going to come true. And that I had to reassess Mm -hmm. that and myself. And so a lot of that is, comes from my own struggles, you know? Yeah. I was wondering, you know, I rewatched it again uh, this morning for our show and, and I thought to myself, like, this is, now having done the show with you for five years but also having been your friend for much longer this is your point of view this is very yeah. much your voice um uh in a number of ways right the the knowledge of film that people you know you have these characters randomly dropping godard or Truffaut or whatever right. throughout the script which of course shows the film knowledge there but you can also sense this little kind of, uh, and I, I want to say this as uh, correctly as possible, like a little bitterness throughout this film about these people that they are assistants for, about Hollywood itself, about the process. And this is 15 years after a film like Swimming with Sharks. So there had been, a, the player, there had been a number right. of films that were criticizing the business and the industry. What were you aware of that? And did that motivate you to try to write a script that was uniquely different from both of these films that were done, you know, uh, to highlight some of the toxicity that exists in the film industry, even today, we're not that far removed from Weinstein finally being put on the bench. So yeah. What did you Um, think? 
And great. Well, and uh, who was it? The gentleman from a few months ago, the big theater uh, producer. Yeah. Scott Rudin. Yeah. Scott Rudin, who was finally benched for a little bit. Yeah. So, so first of all, that is a great question. And you, mm-hmm. you're hundred percent on the money. Um, so one thing is, of course, I was aware of those movies and the experience I had, and I don't know if you had this experience, but when I first saw the player, uh, and Swimming with Sharks came out right when I had moved to L.A. for right. to go to film school. I thought they were ridiculous, over the top, you know, <laughs> satires. <laughs> and then slowly coming here, I was like, oh, no, these are like documentaries. Like right. it is it is exactly that terrible, if not much, much more terrible. Right. Um, so that was the first experience. The other experience, by the way, I should have said before, mm-hmm. is that uh, another piece of what the assistance is, is uh, I have a uh, a a best friend of one of my closest friends became really, really famous mm. all of a sudden. And he had put all of his, everything's going to be okay when I'm famous. If I could mm-hmm. just be famous, everything's going to be okay. And he got famous and it wasn't okay. And he was, right. if anything, more depressed and sad because he had achieved the thing that was supposed to fix him yeah. and it didn't fix him. And then what happened was he kind of lost all of his friends because all of his other friends were struggling actors and artists and stuff like that. And they couldn't relate to his problems, right? you know, and they couldn't, and he couldn't really relate to them because they're still going, I really want to succeed and be famous. And he's going, it's not that great. And right. so suddenly that, that, and that knowledge that became a big part of what the assistance is, is like, what is the nature of the dream that you're going after? Mm-hmm. What is its cost? And then what happens when you get there, you know, and yeah. maybe going, it's not so nice. And then the, the other thing, just because you mentioned Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I would not write the movie the way that I wrote it today, post mm. Me Too, post mm-hmm. Harvey Weinstein, because Gary Green, it's it, it's just different. And, yeah. and you know, I, I, I did it for the reasons that I did it when I wrote the script, you know, over a decade ago. Mm. But looking at it now, I go, ooh, it's not. It, it, all the implications are really different today. Yeah, I did feel that way about the film too. It felt, and and again, you know, I, I say these from a place of love and friendship, but it did feel a little bit of its time. Like that's yeah. that that's a snapshot of Hollywood at that time, around the uh, mid to late two uh, thousands, um, and how people felt about the business, how people felt about the industry. I'd heard those stories as well. It's one of the reasons I I never became an assistant. Uh, myself, I would temp as an assistant uh, every once in a while for for Charles Seegers over at Scripps, uh, and I I had access to all those um, all those uh, uh, contacts of his every once in a while. Rolled calls with him. I got the idea of what it might be like, and and you do s- to have a sample or you do get a window into what it's going to take for you to get to the next level, and you've got to really want it because. Assistants are a dime a dozen, and you've got oh, yeah. to really want it in a way that stands out. So, watching what you're talking, what you were talking about in the movie here, yeah, I was stu- I was struck with, wow, this is a this is a time capsule of that time. Now we've kind of become more open. Yes, post me too, post Black Lives Matter as well. Like, yep, I, I imagine this cast will be much more diverse uh, than it, than it is in in 2009 when you made the film, and so the exploration of those issues would be so different uh, in a post-MeToo, post-Black uh, Lives Matter world and a post-Weinstein, uh, post-Rude world yeah. as well to see what you can do with it. But but I, th- I thought... Uh... I thought Joe Mantegna did a fantastic job as uh, as uh, he's uh, great. Gary Green, I think he, he, you know because he doesn't imbue him with a stereotypical plasticity that is one level. There's more going on in interactions, and he's actually trying to drop some wisdom to Jack about the business as it is now 
when you were making that film. Uh, and I, I felt like that was a really interesting uh, level to or character choice to make for for Joe Mantegna. How did you go about getting Joe, getting uh, Jane Seymour, getting Stacey Keach? So uh, Joe, Karen had worked as the uh, in the casting department on Joan of Arcadia. And mm. she had come to know Joe there. And he, as, as we said a million times, he's literally like the nicest person in the yes. world. And she maintained that contact. And he was one of the first person we thought of. And right. so we got the script to Joe because of Karen's connection. And Joe liked the script. And, mm. that, you know, and he, he, uh, um, he likes working on projects that were different, doing small things where he gets mm -hmm. to play kind of different things. Um, he was lovely too. I think one of the keys that happened, the key scene with Joe is obviously the one after the night with Sarah. Yes. Um, and, and I remember he and I went, and the, one of the best things is to be able to sit down with your actors mm -hmm. and really talk before you go show at the movie. So we went to Taste of Chicago, which was the restaurant he owned in Burbank. Hmm. And we were hanging out and talking before we shot it. And he kind of said, so he's he's kind of being a jerk in this scene and he's he's just kind of this womanizer and i and and the thing that i was explained that i think he got so well which is that it's the character's like a heroin addict mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the heroin is really bad and he knows it's bad and it's making him in the long run really really unhappy right. but in the short term it makes him really happy and so now he's explaining to this other person well, this is where you buy the drugs from and this is how it works and this is how you shoot up. And it's and it's both a uh, th this is a good thing and mm -hmm. an ex exposing his pain, right. you know, right. And and that complexity of the character, like because because part of it is that Gary Green is the bad future of Jack. You mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. this is where it could go wrong. And Gary Green started in the movie business because he loved this movie, Valentine Boy, and he right. wanted to make great films, like those great films of the 70s, and he didn't do that. Right. And so he's this person who's filled with all this regret, who's really powerful, but is really sad, and then trying to fill that sadness by sleeping with these young women to, to fill up the hole in his heart that he just can't fill up. You know, yeah. and, and, Gary, and Joe handled that all so beautifully. Yeah, I agree. And and maybe if you were to make the film now, there's a scene where one of these women breaks him down and confronts him about what he's doing and puts him out and calls him out on the table and says, all this stuff that you're doing, you're doing, and this is what it means. This is what it indicates. So you could see where a scene like that would really even deepen the character more or enrich the Gary Green situation even more. Because you do give Joe that moment when he's sitting on the chair in the leather chair. To, you know, telling his truth about what it means to him, kind of opening up a little bit late night to Jack. And you also have that with uh, with Zach Cooper as well, uh, that scene with Carl, when he's telling him, I lost all my friends. You were bringing that story up a few minutes ago. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of moments. And it, it's about after the 40-minute mark, if I noticed correctly, where things start to turn a little bit and you want to give these characters that we've kind of been show these uh, outer characters, that being Jane Seymour and uh, Joe Mantegna and, uh, and uh, Stacey Keach, uh, you give them a little bit more, and Stacey Keach, of course, is a little bit later on in the in the film. But you get a little more depth uh, rather than oh, this is just a, a producer who screws young women. This is just a a rich old lady. This is just a, a you know a guy who used to be who used to write a great film. There's more uh, in the interactions and the honesty that is going on here near the end of the film, or near the past the forty minute mark of film that lets us connect to these characters a little bit more and weigh in um, and sense the stakes as it goes along. 
that that's a hundred percent exactly accurate. Mm. That's exactly what I was going for. And it's funny. Um, uh, there's some, there are a whole bunch of mistakes that I made mm. or uh, poor choices in many, many ways. And one of the biggest ones, I remember we did, um, remains of the day uh, yes. a while ago. Yes. And there was a comment as they had a screening from one of the executives when, uh, they didn't get together at the end and they leave in that just horrible scene in the rain. Right. And the executive said, Oh, there goes $50 million. <laughs> and, and it, it, one of, I won't say it's a mistake, but, but this yeah. movie is set up like, Hey, our heroes are going to beat the evil uh, executives and they're going to make their movie. And isn't that going to be awesome? That's right. And if I had made that kind of a movie, I might've made more money, you know, oh, wow. but, but, but that's not, I, I'm, what I'm interested in, and right. if there's any theme in my work, and it, strangely enough, it applies very much to the Great White Shark films, Yeah, is I'm really interested in, oh, you think that this is this thing. Mm -hmm. But in fact, when you look closer, you will find it's more complicated. Right. And, and that's what I, and I was also interested in that those people who are jerks, they're like our friends. All mm -hmm. of them started off as assistants all of them started off with dreams all of them started off this way and mm -hmm. so it isn't that we have our heroic young people going against the bad people it's right all of us could end up there you yeah. know yeah well let's get into a first uh, a couple of uh, patron questions let's get into our first one here brennan marr he he asks and uh, the great brennan marr he was on our ratatouille episode brennan said did you try to emulate the directing and or artistic style of any director in particular when you were making this film if so who not really i i, I it, it's not the way i think so much i think i have a lot of influences mm -hmm. more than emulating so like um the one of the influences there's the scene we talked about in crimes and misdemeanors where uh um martin landau sees mm -hmm. his family having the dinner the passover mm -hmm. and he's looking at his own flashback and then he interrupts his own flashback yeah. Um, and I love that kind of idea. And a lot of that comes from, you know, starting in theater and theater is so much more able to mess with reality. You yeah. know, you could have someone walk into a scene, walk out of a scene, narrate a scene, change what's happening in the scene. Mm -hmm. And so those things were influenced on on multiple moments in the movie where I wanted to kind of break reality a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, the the voice, if the probably the biggest um, thing I'm inspired by is the the narration of fight club the way mm. that fight club is telling the story to the audience but it's also interacting and intercut you know it's not mm. narration to just explain exposition it's it's a hopefully a live part of the movie um mm. whether or not i succeed at that is up to other people to judge but that's definitely yeah. an influence yeah i had some struggle with that to be honest with you because i because in fight club it works because he's in every scene as one character or the other and I felt like Jack narrating like the scene between Carl and um, mm. oh God, I can't remember the other guys. Yeah, the guy's name, Carl and Zach, when they're having that, why would he know that story? Why would he even narrate that? So there are moments yep, within the that's film. That's a great where, point. Yeah, yeah, scenes in the film. And of course, it's not, this is us talking about it. It's not any kind of like actual criticism, but just like no, what it's a, struck it, it's what a, struck it me. It is a criticism. It's a totally, that's a totally valid criticism. Yeah, it, it, so I just thought it was odd to see those things. Like if you were to do it now, because also like, you know, everybody knows the great narration is Morgan Freeman and, and Shawshank. Or sure. Like, how would you... Would you change that at all? Would you like maybe adjust some of that narration? Adjust, make yeah. make Jack more like because I'm sure you've seen the film like a hundred times, so you've got 
thoughts <laughs> about how you do it now and whatever. Like, what what do you feel about the narration as a technique? Because it's the one thing you know as a screen as a as a teacher, it's the one thing they tell oh, you yeah. that is a bit of a cop out in screenwriting. Why did you decide that this was the right move for your film? I I so the I don't have a problem with the narration existing. I like the narration. Mm-hmm. I think there's too much of it. That's the first thing. Okay. And, and, and there's way and there's lines definitely. There's one line in particular that I should have cut out of the movie. Okay. And I think it genuinely hurt the film. And and it's a bummer to me that I didn't. I held on to it because it meant something to me personally. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things. This is like such a basic rule that I I broke is that. If it means something to you personally, that's great. But if it doesn't translate to the audience yeah. in the way that you want it to, um, and the line, it's right at the very beginning. And Jack, it's after Carl has sort of taken them through this really dark version of their future, mm. and they're all depressed. And Jack makes a speech to bring it all together. And there's a line of narration where he says, after they're all happy again, he says, Did I mean it? Of course, I did. I meant every full of shit word. Mm-hmm. And that had a really specific meaning to me. Right. I don't think that's the meaning that went across. So mm-hmm. the meaning to me was it came from actually my dad's 60th birthday. Oh, and we're at a huge party with all of his friends. And I suddenly and I'm, you know, 30 something. And mm-hmm. I suddenly went, oh, you know what? I'm a grown up now. I should make one of those toasts, you know, and get up and speak like yeah. that's what I should do. Right. And I'd never done one of those things before. And I thought through it and figured out what I was going to say. And then I had this thought. I was like, when I say this line my dad's going to cry. You know, I just <laughs> knew it. It was planned. I'm going to, and I worked it. I'm going to pause here. And this is where I'm going to look. I really, because, you know, I'm a you directed writer. Your own speech. You directed your own speech. A hundred percent. And the thing is, I meant everything I was saying. It right, was right, right. Absolutely from the heart. Mm-hmm. But I, but I also was manipulating and directing my own speech, as you say. Yeah. Did I mean it? Of course I did. I meant every full of shit word. That's what that <laughs> line meant to me. But the way I think it comes across in the movie is that he doesn't mean it, that he's full of shit. Yeah. And that this, is, yeah. And this is the key, the key mistake in the whole film that I didn't is that I didn't. And it's funny, we had our first screening, like an early rough cut. Yeah. And someone watched it. I said, what do you think? They're like, oh, I loved it. You knew this guy was an asshole from the beginning. And then he totally betrayed them in the end. And I'm like, no, that's not what I wanted to. That's not the movie I'm trying to make. And then I spent months re-editing and changing things to try to pull back. to Because to me, what the movie wanted to be, what I wanted to be, yeah. is Jack does. Jack believes he's doing everything because he loves his friends. And in the end, Ooh, he really? betrays okay. them. Okay. All right. You know? Well, this is what I say. I did. This is where I didn't yeah. succeed. I yeah. think I think I pulled him back from being as much of an asshole as he was in that first cut. But I didn't, you know, because in a way, it's the opposite of the, what we were talking about with Gary mm-hmm. Green and some of these other characters that you think they're these assholes. But then you see these more complicated sides. Jack, yeah. I wanted to be this person that you think is a, is a good guy. And then he does these not so good things. Yeah. And I and I failed. You know, that's where I really as a filmmaker. And I, I remember, you know, moving this line, moving this reaction shot, mm-hmm, changing mm-hmm. and softening. And, and and I would say from here, I made it back 60% of the way or 70% yeah. of the way, but I didn't make it all the way. And that line, mm-hmm. that one line is one of the key problems that I wish I had taken out. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. Jack's not a likable guy throughout the whole film, in my opinion. I, I don't connect to him. I don't like him. I, I, when he does what he does, it's not a surprise to me. I do think the film lets him off the hook way too easily. 
there should have been the friends going off on him. There should have been like 10 minutes of self-reflection where he's off like, and his friends want nothing to do with him because it seems too quick that they're like, but we did this movie. Let's all get it back together and do it again. It just felt like this guy fucked you guys over. Like there should be a stronger reaction with the amount of work that you've put in. So I do feel that a little bit with Jack, but, and I also think the narration when, when he's narrating what he's going to do before he does it, it makes him come off as calculated through the whole film. So, and, and that doesn't feel like he's an authentic person. So that I think I, I hear what you're saying about pulling it back, but yeah. And I also hear about what you say that you, you didn't pull him all the way back to where you felt now in retrospect, he would have come across as a, as a sympathetic character, which is ironic because there are human moments that, um, uh, sorry, I don't, uh, that Chuck, that Chris Connor rather puts in to Jack Ryder in some of his looks in some of the quieter moments there is like when he's uh, seeing Sarah after everything that's happened or, or when he's talking to um, uh, the blonde girl, when they're coming out of the bar, like there, mm-hmm. there are, there is, there are human elements to what he's doing. Uh, and certainly the last look when he's in the car, looking at them, when they're shooting that shot for their film that they're making, there is a desire to connect a desire yep. to reconnect the bridges there um but yeah i i I, but i i you know honestly i didn't like the guy but i understood in the end why you made the decision you made with him it makes it made sense uh, yeah yeah i'll give you i'll give you two examples um one i'm not going to make too specific because i don't want to throw anyone under the bus but uh one thing i never first of all chris is a phenomenal actor yeah anyone who watched him in altered carbon he yeah. steals that show, man. He is so good. He's in fact, good. directing Chris, like what I, I had to learn how to direct him differently because mm. frequently with 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 actors, I'll make a somewhat like I'll say a somewhat strong direction, mm-hmm. knowing that the actor will probably get sixty percent of the way or eighty percent of the way there, and so my direction's a little bit stronger. Chris is like driving a Ferrari. <laughs> Whatever I told him, he did exactly. I was like, oh, I have to be really really specific because he can do whatever i ask and the one direction i never gave him was i never said what i just said to you everything Mm. you're doing is for love and if i had given him that direction it would have changed a whole bunch of little things the other thing is there's one scene where basically an actor that he was working with was being a jerk to him off camera i didn't know this because i couldn't see i didn't see what's happening to the off-camera dialogue and so i it was a scene that chris had auditioned with it's why chris got the part yeah, it was like he just nailed the scene, and it was the hardest scene to edit. I re-edited probably fifty times, rearranging mm-hmm. the dialogue because the energy was not right, and because the energy is not right in that scene, it's one of the other little pieces of yeah. he's acting out of manipulation, not out of love. Yeah, and and those are you know, and it's like this is in editing. You know, it's like, okay, well, what if I move this line a little later? What if I change this look? What if I right. use this reaction shot instead of this reaction shot? Just str- And I never got it. I never got it to where I wanted it to be. Yeah. You know? Sometimes sometimes that's the way it goes with, when you're making films. And certainly many filmmakers have spoken about, I had to work with what I got. They couldn't get the reshoots. I couldn't get the money and what have you to do those. So, And we'll get into that in just a second. Uh, let's get to Matthew Grum. Like, he's got a few questions here. Uh, he says, how do you feel... Um, how do you feel out where to cut dialogue to make it natural, fast slash slow? Um, and uh, when is vo- oh, yeah. is it a coincidence that the writer is kind of the hero <laughs> of this story? Uh, that's the Ben character. Yeah. Um, well, the the first part I have, I haven't. Mm-hmm. I will. I, it's weird to say. Like I have a natural ear for dialogue. That sounds like I'm just praising myself. I'm trying to put it in the right way. There is a way in my head that dialogue is supposed to sound. Mm-hmm. And so that it's not, it's trying to get it there. Like when I wrote it, 
there's a rhythm in my head of how the yeah. dialogue should work. And when I'm editing, there's a rhythm in my head. And even, by the way, you know, cutting the cinephiles. Yeah. I'll cut us just so to cut out an um or to cut out mm. a, a line of dialogue didn't go anywhere. Now I'm trying to fit it together and make it feel natural. And there are hundreds and hundreds of dialogue edits in every episode of the cinephiles. And yeah. I hope most of them you don't notice. A few of them, they're a little bit rough sometimes, but, and that's because that's, there's a, it's like music in your head of yeah. this is how this language is supposed to sound. Right. This pause is unnatural. This pause is now makes it feel natural. Yeah. You yeah, know? yeah. Understood. Understood. Uh, okay. The second part is uh, about yeah. the writer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is it a coincidence? <laughs> I, I, I think, I, I don't know. It's funny. Cause I, Sorry. I think Aaron just shines in the movie. He does. I think I like he him a lot. really steals every scene he's in. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, the uh, working on a script for years and never getting to the end of it. That's me too. You mm -hmm. know? So like the, and the scene of Chris saying, you know, the, the, you know, Orson Welles did wrote a uh, touch right. of evil in three days. And he says, well, I'm not Orson Welles. And Chris says, how, how do you know? Like that's, I, that's sort of me thinking about, man, I wonder if I could do it, but what could yeah. I, what, well, and it's also, you know, a lot of the assistance mirrors what I was going through is like, cause a lot of it is putting everything on the line, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. if you, if, if you put everything on the line, can you really deliver? It's fine to live in the fantasy world of, Oh, if someone would give me, you know, pass me the ball. I'm going to make the big shot, but okay, what if you really do it? And so uh, Ben is a character who is forced to put everything on the line yeah. and succeeds. You, know? you also give that speech to Jack uh, when things are starting to fall apart about, hey, you guys have been sitting around bitching that you're not doing the jobs you want to do. This is your opportunity. This is your chance uh, overall to do it. Are you going to step up or not do it? And Ben's the one that says, I'm not going to do it, no matter what you say. And then he, he has to work harder to win Ben over eventually um, as the producer. Well, it's really, it, yeah. it's really Harlan. It's Stacy Keats showing up that wins right. Ben over. I, I think everything you're right. I think yeah. if Harlan keys doesn't show up at that moment, yeah, then that friendship is broken. Right. Right. That's what did, I think. Did you have an, did you not have another change of clothes besides the suit for Stacy Keats? He's in the garbage. He's in the garbage in the bar. And when he shows up to the house, so I imagined he was coming right after work, but I yeah. was just like, well, I'm it's, sure he wears a pair of jeans somewhere. <laughs> It's so funny. These are the one of you conversations you have with costume people of like, yeah. what day is it? How much time has passed? And we decided that's all the same day. <laughs> oh, he, oh, yeah. okay. Because he tells them to meet him at the bar at, at four o'clock or whatever. Right, right. And then they come home and Jack is saying, okay, this is now going to be plan B because we lost Harlan and he shows up. Right. But but by the way, I know I've mentioned that, that I cut scenes with Stacey Keach. The one that I cut is... There's actually a scene where Stacy Keach comes in. He, you know, he shows up at the door, mm -hmm. and then he comes in and he yells at Jack and he yells at Ben and he says, "I'm never. You guys are, you know, assholes." And and then they, the group of them, convince him to join them. Yeah. And what oh. I realize is, is a, I did a terrible job shooting it because mm -hmm. we were so rushed. Yeah. But really, I realize is once you see him at the door, it's over. Like, you, yeah. You, you know, he's, there's no reason to have that scene. Right. And so even though Stacy was fantastic in it, yeah. I cut it out of the movie, you know? Yeah, it makes sense because you've got the character coming to these guys. So yeah. already you imagine he is in on this situation. He wouldn't have shown up, especially the way you've presented the character from the beginning as standoffish and not wanting to be a part of this. The fact that it took them hours to convince him of what was happening and to maybe be a part of it shows that he has strong walls up 
And when he shows up, it's like James Earl Jones going with Kevin Costner in Field of Dreams. Yes. Yeah, he's committed. Yes. Uh, totally. And by the, by the way, give a shout out to Aaron Himmelstein. For those of you who don't know, he played young Austin in Austin Powers Gold Member, and he's the voice of Desna in the Legend of Korra TV series. So a lot of these actors went on to do a number of things, have done a number of things. So, uh, you know, it's not like that they were early in their career. It's not the, 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 I don't think it was the first thing they did here, but, you know, from here forward, they've all gone on to do some really incredible stuff. So, uh, how did the casting process go about with this? Was was Karen the casting director of this uh, film? So Karen and Jamie Rudofsky were partners. They were oh, both Jamie. the casting directors. Right. Um, Jamie is a fantastic casting director. Yes. Yeah, By is. the way, uh, one silly story, which uh, is uh, no regrets about having Chris Connor play Jack. He's awesome. Yeah. But there was another actor that Jamie sent the script to who was an up and coming person who might have wanted to do it and that actor was chris pine wow and and but he couldn't do it because he was shooting the other this other movie and the movie was shooting star trek star trek (laughs) so there's like an alternate universe like if we had shot like three months earlier or something there's an alternate universe in which chris (laughs) pine had that role uh jamie and karen (laughs) were amazing i mean they're both such advocates for actors they brought in so many good people to look at and really you know that that's what good casting directors do is really fought for people uh, mike terry who i adore mm-hmm. i had seen him in a play that i didn't like and okay. i didn't particularly like him in the play right and jamie was like no you have to see him again you have to bring him in and we brought him in for the audition and he was good like good enough that i wanted mm-hmm. to see him in a callback right. and in the callback he was great yeah and then in the we did a chemistry read in the chemistry read he just blew my mind and he's fantastic i think he's great in the assistance yeah. he went on to do years on bones yes he is he is also the best non-professional cook that i know the guy <laughs> is like an amazing amazing cook he is really we had him on the show doing um uh boogie nights and he's, yes he's super smart he's great yeah yeah we've tried to get him back we've talked about bringing him back i think uh, before in the past i think we were talking about braveheart with him we couldn't quite make it work but hopefully yeah that's right good memory down, yeah yeah hopefully down the road we'll we'll figure that out uh peter bylone has come in with a few questions peter i can't, we, we can't ask 35 questions so i'm gonna try to find one let's move over well l- l- let me do this how about director uh he says this uh the assistance was there a part of the film where director steve had a different vision than writer steve if so which part and looking back now which side of you was right and also what was the best? What was the best piece of advice or nugget of wisdom you got from the cast while making this film? Yeah, I mean, we're focusing on Steve Morris, but was there an interactivity here with you in the cast where the cast maybe taught you a lesson or two about directing actors or about the process itself of making the film? So uh, several things. So the answer is there are actually really three people that were arguing with each other. That's the writer <laughs> Steve, the director Steve, and the editor Steve. Okay. And pretty much the writer and the editor get along pretty well. Both of them are really pissed off at the director. That guy <laughs> fucked up. So, I mean, like the amount of, because the director, you know, I was under so much pressure and yeah. trying to to get, make my day and get stuff done. And I would miss things and miss reaction shots or, you know, directions I didn't give. And, you know, it, in, in uh, post when I'm trying to cut the thing, I'm like, the writer did fine. <laughs> he's he's okay <laughs> that director's we got a real problem with him yeah um as far as actors there's there's so many things so uh uh three quick stories okay the one is is right when we started the first thing we did when we got the cast was i said 
let's have a party because I'm because these people have to be friends. So it's yeah. like, let's have a party and hang out. To know each and, other. Sure. and Chris came up to me and he said, I want the party to be at my house. I'm going to throw the party um, because he wanted to. Uh, it's funny. We were just uh, we were just doing a movie where we talked about the star of the movie, who was a leader in the movie, being a leader right. with the cast and crew. That's right. exactly what Chris did. And when we he threw a party at his house and he took every one of the actors outside to have a private moment with each of them <laughs> to try to start to establish the relationship. We also, um, uh, where we shot, there was a big white wall and nobody wants to shoot uh, against a big white wall. It's not good for lighting. And I'm talking to Rebecca Bell, who's the production designer. Mm -hmm. And she says, so here's what we could do. We could paint the wall, but then we had to paint it back and it's going to cost this much money. And she, and she said, or what we could do is make a, like a mural, like hang a huge canvas and make mm. a mural. And I said, oh, I like that idea. And then I said, well, what if we have our cast come in and they paint the mural? So we had another party. And oh. the reason we did it is that I went, oh, you know what happened is Jack manipulated his friends into doing the art in his uh, loft, which makes oh, sense for his character. Yeah. And so the whole wall, that big, bright, colorful wall, all the cast made that. And wow. so and with, with Rebecca and the other actual art people supervising and making right. sure they did it the right way right. so that they all felt kind of unified. Um, Stacy Keach, uh, I had a meeting with him like I did with Joe. and um, He's so good in the film, by the way. I know great. he's only got a few scenes, but he knocks it out of the park every time. I, I grew up loving Stacy Keach and Mike Hammer. And so to see him saying your lines, to see him playing this character – and giving so much depth to a character that only has so much screen time was really great. But anyway, sorry. I mean, I just wanted to no, no. Listen, interrupting to to praise Stacy Keach, I 100 percent agree. <laughs> that guy is amazing. Yeah. So I have my meeting with him, and he shows up, and this is the greatest feeling. I can't even tell you. He shows up with my script in his hand, dog-eared, highlighted, notes in the margins, and he has like 50 questions for me. Wow. Um, which just it just felt. I, I can't even describe how that felt to me. Mm -hmm. um, and he, we were talking and of course, of course he'd worked with Orson Welles and he'd worked with John Houston. Right. And so, and this is this crazy connection. And I asked him some questions and he said, and what's funny is I've now heard this from other actors working with mm -hmm. John Houston. He said, John Houston only gave me two directions. And he, then he did his John Houston impression, which was a little more, a little less. <laughs> and so we're, we're, uh, and I, which I just loved That's and great. we're, doing the moment where he calls jack on the phone right and he has to say it's harlan fucking keys and we're recording we recorded when we shot the bar scene so we're just getting wild lines mm -hmm. and he he did it into the mic and i said a little more <laughs> and he went okay and he did it a little more and i went a little more and really and i and I did a little more and then that's how we got that take of it's harlan wow. fucking keys wow. you know so that was just a uh He's he's so great and he's such a damn pro. Mm -hmm. And once he locked into that character, man, I I don't I doubt I gave him. There was one other moment we were doing the scene where he is reading the script. Yeah, and we had done three takes, I think, and the third take was good. It wasn't great. Mm -hmm. It was it was totally good. And as always, we were under huge time pressure. We were rushing like crazy. And I'm, and I'm in video village, which means I'm watching this on a monitor and I had to walk all the way around the building to get in, to actually talk to uh, the actors in person. Cause act, you know, directors who talk to their actors through a radio, I don't really like, like yeah, I yeah. think you need to be in person. And I, and I'm debating like, do we do another take? Do we not do another take? What do we right. do? And I just decided, um, you know what? 
let's move on. And I'm walking in about to say move on. And Stacy says, Stacy does this. And I go, okay, we're going to do one more. And then that's the, that's the take that's in the movie. Of course. <laughs> well, I will say this. I want to give you uh, some compliments for every scene, for whatever reason, every scene with Jane Seymour is so well shot. So well done. I, I, I think those scenes stand out for a number of reasons. Uh, the wig works perfectly. And I've seen a number of recently the flag day film with the Sean Penn. Those are some terrible wigs he puts on his daughter in that film, but the wig on Jane Seymour works so perfectly. And I thought you did a really excellent job uh, with the cinematographer who we'll talk to a little bit later, um, framing those scenes and shooting all those scenes. It was believable that this was a place that this woman would live in. It didn't feel forced. It didn't feel like you guys rented a house and put her in it. She looked like she lived here. She, it was very lived in it. And I wonder what was the process with that? Because also it's lit in a little, it's lit, it's lit a little more yellowy than any of the other scenes. Was that to convey that image of wealth and gold and richness? Yes. Or, okay. 100%. Right. Yeah. yeah. It, it's So first of all, that's Jane's wig. Um, and Jane <laughs> no was, it, it was, in, she was insistent on it. She's like, I have the wig for the character. Um, Jane had a That's very, awesome. very strong opinion about her costumes, which is yeah. great. Her wardrobe is awesome. Um, that, that basically Jane was shot entirely in two days. Wow. Her, her whole role. So every single thing that's in her house, that's one day of shooting from the dogs in the bathroom to the bedtime stuff. Wait, wait, all in you one shot day. in her house. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Okay, okay. That's you not, mean the character's no, no. house. Sorry, sorry. No. Okay, go ahead. By the way, Jane's house in, in, in Malibu. Oh, that's I'm nice. sure. It's a, it's, it's a nice place. That Quinn um, Medicine no. woman, it buys a nice house. Good. We, yeah. No, we had to look forever. I mean, we we looked at so many houses mm -hmm. because we needed a house that could do that and be have the pool mm -hmm. for Zach because mm -hmm. we couldn't have all the moves. Right. And so we had to have a house that did both. And then we found out we were losing. We thought we were going to have three days with Jane, but we only had two because she had another shoot and there's other stuff going on. Right. And so figuring out how to shoot, it's like seven or eight scenes, including scenes with animals. Right. That yes. was the dogs. Yes. That was a brutal, brutal day. And Jane is just a pro. Like yeah. she, she, you know, rarely would need a second take. She had the character down. It, it, it was just really logistically, how could we move through that house mm -hmm. and get all those shots? Let me, and let me ask you real quick. Is this a process when you're doing a film? Like, look, I did a film with Armand Asante for my friend, Andre Gordon, and right. it was about meeting his quota. And if you meet his quota, he'll read your script and do it. Were these people reading your script first and then you were going out to them and seeing if you could meet their quota? Or were these people that Jamie and Karen kind of thought about, wanted to bring into the movie? I mean, Mantegna, I mean, uh, uh, Jane Seymour, and I mean, Stacey Keach, and knew that they could fit within the budget their quotas. What, what was the process with that? So I, um, I'll oh, behind the a little curtain, bit so to, speak, to, so. to, to, to Karen to some okay. degree. But, okay. but what I'll say is... Joe, Karen reached out to Joe because okay. she knew him and he read the script and liked the script. Um, so, so irrelevant that, of quota. It was the script first. I mean, we had to come up with a, a number that was reasonable. But Oh, sure. You, of course, of course. But it was but, the but script you, that dragged, brought him in first. Yeah. Saying. yeah. Okay. I, and I would say, um, again, it feels like I'm I'm blowing my own horn or something, but I, the script was a big motivator for a lot of people. Okay. You know, mm -hmm. the, the script, uh, we got a lot of people submitted. So what happens, you put the script out, you put out what are called breakdowns saying we're looking for these right. people. My memory, Jane Seymour submitted herself for the role. Mm. Wow. Um, now I don't know maybe whether she read it or her agent read it and said right. this would sounds like something good for you but but she wanted to do it and then uh, Stacy what happened with Stacy Keith so we had a small connection because 
uh, my good friend Soren, his dad, Bill Oliver, was a professor of theater at Berkeley, mm. and he was Stacy Keach's professor in the nice. early 60s. So Soren grew up with Stacy as like kind of the older brother, you know, student. So he kind of so we had a small connection to him. It was funny. I heard Stacy interviewed years later talking about Bill Oliver and how much this guy wow. taught him about acting. Um, and what happened was basically I totally uh Joe said, so Stacy Keach gonna do it? And Stacy said, Is Joe Montaigne gonna do it? <laughs> and I told them both yes. And then they both said yes. <laughs> and Jane was like, I don't give a shit if either of these two do it. I'm well, doing here's it. What, <laughs> here's what we didn't know because yeah. I'm an idiot, is I didn't know Jane at the time was married to James Keach. She was married to Stacy's brother. Oh, right. And I didn't even know that when we were right. I mean, I found it out pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But that also, I think, was part of why Jane, you know, because she knew Stacy, even though they right. don't have any scenes together. Right, right, right. James Keach from Wildcats, the Goldie Hawn film. I remember it being the villain sure. in that. And Walk uh, the Line. And yeah. Yes, Walk the Line. That's right. That's right. Uh, let's see. So let's move uh, quickly to some Great White Shark stuff, because um, uh, I know that's a part of Beyond the Cage of Fear. That's part of this as well in the title. Um, let's see. Well, um, uh, was there a day, a scene, a sequence that surprised you? at how well it was executed. I'm assuming that when shooting a document, you've got a framework for the story you want to tell, but then you have to go to where the story takes you, especially when dealing with something as predictable as Animal in the Wild. How big a difference was there between the movie you thought you'd make and the movie that you did make uh, with uh, with Great White Shark? And let me add something else to this. When it comes to the editing, is it easier to tell your story if it's scripted, like The Assistance, or if it's not, like Great White Shark, Beyond the Cage of Fear? So... First of all, editing-wise, they're both hard, but in really different ways. Okay. Um, I'll tell you a story of two approaches to documentaries. So I worked on some Cousteau films. Yes. Uh, some of their underwater projects that were on, like, PBS. And the Cousteaus have it down. They have a system. Of which course. Is, by this point, yeah. Yeah. So they send a camera crew out to some location. The camera crew does a bunch of dives, and they do a bunch of background information. And mm -hmm. then Fabian or Celine or uh, Jean-Michel, who's Jacques' son they show up and they do an interview with the head scientist and then they, they do a dive. Yeah. And so now we have the footage that was shot before they got there. We have an interview and we have a dive and then they repeat that over and over and over again. It's very predictable. Not that it's easy to make those films. It's yeah. not, it's hard, but it, they have a plan and they're executing the plan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hoover, <laughs> my partner, <laughs> that's not how it works. Hoover is interested in stuff. So the first film that I did, which was Mind of the Demon, which Fabian Cousteau was in, that's how I met the Cousteaus. Mm -hmm. um, they had an idea of making the shark submarine to swim with sharks. And then they just went out and tried to do it. They had no idea what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I got brought on after they had shot most of it as the editor. And they handed me a box of 200 hours of, of footage of tapes, mm -hmm. most of them unlabeled, no camera logs, which is all unprofessional. And I just had to go through and watch 200 hours of tapes and figure out an hour movie in there. Wow. You know? And so that took me probably four or five months just to watch the footage. Right. You know, and then trying to figure out. So an editor on a documentary has way, way more control mm -hmm. than an editor on a feature because I created what that film was about. And then on Beyond the Cage of Fear, which I was involved with from the beginning, it was still, we're going to go out and try a bunch of stuff. We have no idea what's going to happen. Right. And based on what's going to happen, that's what's going to create the story. And, and for that, it really was me finding a structure and, a, mm -hmm. and, a, and an idea of a way to get into it and then framing the doc around that. And there's all sorts of things that were super interesting right. that aren't in the movie because they didn't fit into that structure, you know? Okay. Okay. 
Uh, anything else to add on to that in terms of uh, the scenes itself? Or there was a day that you really thought you nailed it as uh, as Peter Bylon is asking? Peter Bylon is asking. On the documentary? Um, uh, yeah. Or or on the assistance, either one. If well, the assistance, I think, yeah. the assistance, I think the highlight is that scene with Joe and Chris okay. at night. That was yeah. where uh, you could just, you could hear a pin drop uh, right. on the set. Everyone knew they were watching two great actors uh, just doing it and that mm -hmm. was really really cool on the documentaries are so spread out so i don't know if there's like a moment i did lots of interviews and then i would do more interviews and then we ne realized we needed some more shots so we took the boat out to catalina and we shot a bunch wow. of stuff there and it's all kind of fitting it together in pieces over over time mm -hmm. uh yeah there's some edits that are but it would be too in the weeds to explain <laughs> why the edits because hopefully with good editing you don't see right what it is i did i know that i did some crazy stuff mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. you wouldn't notice it um i i think it was idea wise of like ways it, it was when we finally figured out the structure because i think that the, here's the big thing about that it's a, the part of it is can this mermaid swim with a great white shark which is a ridiculous and stupid idea that i was against <laughs> from the beginning but it was Hoover's idea. And the way we worked together was Hoover was in charge of the boat and the expedition. <laughs> and I was in charge of the film. And so I did, that was, I was like, this is dumb. Yeah. And so the, the big challenge was to go like, how do we get an audience to accept that doing this stupid thing makes sense? And so part of it was that the, what I found was we had to slowly, but surely step-by-step step, change how people think about sharks until at the end, not that they think it makes sense, but go like, Oh, I yeah. feel differently about this than I felt at the beginning. And so because really the way it was shot is everything was happening at once. Right. And what I did was I said, no, no, this happens in a certain order. And this thing that happened leads to that thing happening, which isn't right. really true. Um, all the things that happened happened, right. but they didn't happen in the order exactly that they happened in the real world. It makes sense. Uh, let me see. I want to hit a couple of these questions and I want to ask you uh, one last before Joe comes in, uh, if he's going to come in. Uh, Steve, would you say the ending is one of optimism or more like a cautionary tale? I think it's a, it's a mixed ending. I think it's both. Okay. I think I think Sarah really comes, she goes through the darkest journey of all yes. the characters. She's and berated in the into doing what she does, which is really uncomfortable to watch. But yeah, yeah, she has yeah. a dark journey for sure. Well, I'll say, I'll say what's interesting. I remember I had set up when I was writing the script that mm -hmm. uh, that Gary was a womanizer. That has been part of his character. Right. Um, and I had even had this idea of him talking to Jack about womanizing, like the idea of, you know, the Scotch is aged 24 years. How old is she? You know, the, the, those right. lines were already in the script, but had no plan of it being Sarah. Mm -hmm. And then I suddenly went, what if it's Sarah? And I went immediately, no way, I can't do that. That is terrible. It made right. me super uncomfortable. Right. And I told Karen and our good friend, Sarah Foster, and they said, no, you have to do that. Mm -hmm. And, and I, what, I, what I like is that what happens in the movie is that the cynical guy, Carl, mm -hmm. who pushes her to do this, he ends up, he's saying, whatever you do, you got to take advantage. You got to take advantage. And he's the one who can't go through with it with Zach. Right. right. And Sarah, who is the, I would never do anything that's not moral. Mm -hmm. She's the one who does this thing. And so there's a reversal between the two of them. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, in, in answer to your question or in answer to whoever asked this question, uh, yeah. um, I think for Sarah and for our, the gang, it's optimistic. 
they've mm-hmm. Ben has learned that he can actually write this script and that he really is a writer. Mm-hmm. You know, Sarah has come through this dark time. Carl has shaken off some of his veneer and is willing to, you know, be more honest with Sarah and their relationship is back together. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a cautionary tale for Jack. Yeah. Jack's going to be a really, really unhappy person. Yeah, yeah. So I find the I find I wanted something more from the ending. I wanted harder conversations. I wanted the Carl and what's her name again? The 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 actor the actor uh, the character rather the uh, Sarah. Sarah Sarah. I wanted that argument. Like you guys be ready. I did this, and I and I, like this is so, so for her to be like let's just put the movie together. It just seemed like an odd decision to make and may in 2000 and, and in 2009 maybe it fits i think now in 2020 with these eyes which is what i was trying to do the whole time i was watching the film I was like how would this be different now uh it, it was interesting because both her and uh, the editor uh, uh character she is also dressed up and kind of put out there to yep. be to try to seduce this guy or whatever so I, I think there was work to be done with the female characters in the film and i think now in 2021, I think you'd be more aware of that, I would imagine, to flesh that out a little yeah, bit more it, and give them a bit more agency in the movie. I, I wouldn't do either of those things, frankly. I oh. mean, you know, I mean, like, I don't Oh, oh, think... oh you mean in the movie? You wouldn't do it in the movie. Things. Yeah, 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 fair. Yeah, fair, it's totally just, fair. it's the world's different. And yep. and I think you're right. post Harvey Weinstein, uh, the dressing up the girl to be cute. I mean, I, th- I love the scene. I think um, Tate is fantastic. Oh, yeah. And Joe Hernandez Kolsky. Yeah. It is a, I, I think the scene went great, yeah. but I, I wouldn't have done it that way because I've changed, yeah. you know, and, and I certainly post me too. Like there's a difference. There's a difference between how we think of Gary Green, I think today, yeah, yeah, post yeah. Harvey Weinstein, than how we might have thought about him then. And Jack yeah. being a person that's heading in that direction, it doesn't. It, I don't think that works. I, I think it. I think it, it's it's wrong. And yeah, so I wouldn't do it. Yeah, you, you know? don't. You don't call Gary Green out. Like in the end, he doesn't get punished in any way, shape, or form. He gets an eighty-one million dollar film or eighty million dollar film, and all his behavior is in in essence rewarded. And that's weird to see in the long run i don't necessarily feel that people that do bad things have to get punished in movies because sometimes in life people don't get punished i mean there's all sorts of movies where people do horrible things and don't get punished okay but i do think that the the movie has to be aware of that and Mm -hmm. this movie is not you know because of the way we the way i perceive things and the way i wrote in 2007 or 2006 when i was writing this thing you know and i like i said i wouldn't do it this way now right right exactly i think that's it and every artist has that right everyone just 12 years ago yeah there's 12 years ago shit i wouldn't do in terms of acting or voiceover wise as well um five years ago even uh some of the stuff i do now on camera um i will ask one last question for uh before we hopefully get uh, joe mantegna to join us uh, here and this is one we talked about off camera so we'll we'll bring it up now a little bit and there was you know kind of like jack there was a little controversy around the film as well with uh with you and some of our friends who wanted to be in the film wanted to be cast in the film we we talked about this off camera and you said you were willing to talk about it um can you talk a little bit about that and what that maybe like what the journey was for you through that process we saw jack through this process did you sense now uh, uh did you sense that this was a weird kind of connection that your character jack and you kind of went through a little bit in terms of some hurt feelings so you've done this with only three minutes before joe shows up so um, <laughs> I think three minutes is good i think you can do it in 180 seconds so um 
so is am I aware that there's a connection between Jack who turns on his friends and the fact that I didn't cast my friends in this film? Mm. Yeah, I'm aware of that. Um, this thing was extremely painful, particularly because no one talked to us about it. Right. No one came to us and said, hey, we're upset with you about this thing for, for years. For years right. later, I didn't know that this was going on. In, in my mind, Karen and I had demonstrated over and over again for a decade that we cared about our friends, about yes. their artwork. I cast people. I wrote projects for people. I directed things for people. Yep. I cut people's reels. I've, I, been in, I've been in your stuff. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, every time someone had a movie, Karen and I tried to show up to be on the crew, to be extras. If people had plays or showcases, we were there. And maybe most importantly, every project Karen was hired on, the first discussion we had yeah. was, are there things we could bring our friends, you could bring the friends in for? And she brought yeah. friends in many, many times and fought for them to get cast. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that we didn't care um, or didn't take it seriously or didn't believe that our friends are incredibly talented, which I do. Yeah. You know, but what, you know, what I had said when we had that reading was I said, listen, everyone, I love you all. You're all great. You're all past the audition. You're made it to the callbacks if you're interested right. in being in this film. But I can't guarantee anybody I'm going to cast you because this is too big a risk, you know, right. like, and, and I know for of course your money's for, involved. There's a lot involved here. Yeah. And I know, you know, we've had this conversation many, many times, like you're doing, now you're doing your own shows. You're doing hundreds yeah. of shows. You're bringing on guests all the time. I know how seriously you take every single person you bring on. Oh yeah. You, and there's no, and you wouldn't, cause you've told me bring on anyone that you thought wasn't going to be the right person. Right. And that, and it's like, for me, I didn't have hundreds of shows. I could do this once. Yeah. You right. know, and with and your money maybe, on the line, yeah. maybe never again. I mortgaged my house to do it. I put yeah. hundreds of thousands of dollars of my own money that was going to take decades to pay off to make the film. I had people that were the people that I love most in the world investing in me, their hard earned money. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't just the cast, it was every location, every outfit, every camera angle. I did everything I could to make the best possible movie I could make. Yeah. And to be to be doing that, and and that's what you know, that's what you're trying to do. That's what we're all trying yeah, to do. Absolutely. And to to find out that, you know, and and did I make the right choices? Who's to say? I mean, like I made the choices that I believed were right mm -hmm. artistically for my film. You know, you know, I think I might have more of a complaint if there were. Oh, I'm sorry. I think I might have a complaint. Period. If I felt any of these actors didn't do a good job at their roles, but I don't. Uh, you know, does the movie 100 uh, work in every scene? Maybe not, but I think. Uh, the actors absolutely nailed it from top to bottom. And, and they're really incredible in the film, Steve. So, yeah, I mean, and this is part of the game sometimes. And and certainly now with re in retrospect, there is a way to approach this now that you're aware of it, maybe in a, in a different manner if you want or not, because you did what was best for the film. And that's something that you uh, I think you uh, can feel solace in for sure. Um, all right. I just wanted to ask that and maybe we'll revisit it later when Karen comes on, but, uh, we do have, uh, coming to us, uh, to join us in this conversation. Very, uh, very honored to have, uh, this gentleman is one of the actors that we've admired for years. He is Gary green in your movie. He was also our guest for the adventures of Robin hood. Uh, let us bring him on now. Uh, the great, uh, incredibly talented and our joy to bring him on. Joe Mantegna. Mr. Mantegna, wow, how are it. you? With an introduction like that, how should I be? I mean, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm good. Joe, it's I'm so great good. to see you. I'm just happy, to, too, I'm just happy to say hi. No, my pleasure. 
<laughs> well, let me leave you two alone for just a second. I have to grab my dog and bring him in here because she, she's scratching on the door. I'll be right I back. Got, no, I, got, I got one right on the floor right here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Joe, I got I got two stories. So yeah. I, I, this is what I remember because when we first – we had met, I think, during Joan of Arcadia when Karen was working on that. And then mm-hmm. you, you were kind enough to join the cast of this movie. And here's what I remember is that that you said is you said – you're always a little bit concerned when you don't know the people until you see what kind of catering they have. And yes, you, thought exactly. that our, you thought that our food was okay, so we passed the catering test. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, you have to get your priorities straight. I mean, and sometimes you can learn a lot just by what they decide to feed the actors, you know what I mean? Uh, um, you um and you also there's there's something you said you were you were working with Chris Connor and Chris Connor came to me and said that you gave him one of the greatest pieces of advice he had ever gotten, which is you were running lines with him and you said this is the job the job isn't up there the job is here running lines up there and you and you also said that it doesn't matter if it's a huge movie or a tiny movie the job is always exactly the same. Does that sound like what you said? That, that sounds right. I mean, my, it's always been my motto that that, uh, I, I, that I don't really care much, or don't I don't concern myself with the business uh, of what what I do, but I, I I deeply concern myself with the work that I do. So, in other words, you know, the business is the business, and this is going to be what it's going to be. It's this huge conglomerate of things, whether it's the theater, whether it's film, whether it's television, whether whatever it is, uh, it's all going to be there, and and people often people concentrate on all those different aspects of it. But when you got the job, once you got the job, it's just all about, you know, that thing. It's just about doing that thing and the rest will take care of itself. The business is just the, the frame of, for the picture. You know, you have to make the picture. Let me, let me ask you something, Mr. Mantegna. Yeah. First of all, your hair looks fantastic. I love that. Hair. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's all nature. I had nothing to do with it. It's all <laughs> chromosomes at this point. Yeah. I have to use gel to make it look this way. Yours is just natural. I'm very jealous. But with with let me let me kiss Steve's butt a little bit. What was it about the script that really spoke to you? Uh, did you ask the Steve already? I, I don't know if you no. have. Okay. No. What was it about the script that drew you well, to play this character? And you've obviously you've known numerous producers during your career so what yeah. was it about this character Gary Green and the script itself that you we, felt was something you could sink your teeth into well that's one of those questions that that it's it's almost impossible to get specific no matter okay. what you be no matter what you would be talking about no matter what you could bring up any film I've ever done mm. or any television show or any play I've ever done and say well what is it exactly and I would give you the same answer Mm-hmm. And the same answer is, I mean, I can sum it up with with a phrase that I've lived by. If it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. Mm-hmm. So my feeling is when I read something, something, and, and, and again, I can't get specific about it, but something will either resonate or not. In other words, you say right. to yourself, you know what? I like, I like this. And I, I think I know where I can go with this. And if you can say that to yourself, then you're halfway there. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? You're more than halfway there, really. If you can say to yourself, you know what? Then you got to go into the, fine, the more of the fine points. You check mm-hmm. off, okay, you know, who else is in it? What, what, you know, who's directing it? Da, da, da. But those are, in a way, those are secondary. In other words, very rarely would those be things that would would keep me from doing the project. Mm-hmm. It's just information that I need to have. Right. But if I like the material, you know, and I like the, what my place is within that material, yeah, that's enough for me because at the end of the day, all I'm expending really is time and effort. 
So you want to do give put the time and effort into something. I, and I'll give you an example. So I remember when I first read the script of Searching for Bobby Fischer. Oh my God! You know yes. they send me, they send me that yeah no they send me the script. When I read the script, I didn't know who the hell Steve Zalian was. <laughs> you know it didn't matter. I mean, and I didn't know who else was going to be in the movie. I knew none of these things. But I read the script and I went, oh man. Unless I'm kidding myself, this is one of the best written things I've read in a long time. And ironically, I just done the movie Bugsy, and, oh, yeah. and I went to a park. Yeah, I just and we were doing like a we, we were having a we got nominated for best picture that year, and so I think I went to some event. Mm-hmm. And while I was at the event, uh, Ben Kingsley happened to be there because he's oh, in Bugsy as well. Right, right, and so Ben, we're sitting together at the dinner table, and he says to me, he goes. You know, Joe, I've heard that you, I've heard from the producers or whatever, that you've been sent a script of uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer as well. I said, oh, yeah, Ben, yeah, 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 I did. I said, yeah, and what, you know, and then he mentioned to me that they had offered him this role of uh, Pandolfini. I said, yeah, yeah, and they offered me a role of the dad. I said, tell me, what do you, what do you, do you think? He said, well, I think it's one of the finest scripts I've read in my career. And I went, well, that's it. Okay, I'm <laughs> yeah. not so nuts after all. I thought, I was just satisfied that I thought, well, maybe my good taste or my taste was hopefully as, as, as in line with a, an actor I, I so respect. You know what I mean? Yeah. So all I'm saying is it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a version of that. And I've been around a long time now. And so I have nothing else to trust but my, my taste or judgment. Now, if, if it screws up, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out or whatever. But at the end of the day, if, you, if you're making, basing your decision on the material and what, how it resonates to you, yeah. Then that's it. If you yeah. can't say that, then then you're doing it for other reasons. And people, and then there's nothing wrong with that either. People look at it and say, "Well, this is shit. Uh, I, I I really don't know what the hell I'm gonna do with it. But geez, they're throwing a lot of money at me, and I really, you know, I need it. I have a, four lawsuits and six divorces or something. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe that comes into the play with people. What you know what I mean? But for me, I've been happily married for, for almost 50 years, and so I, that that wasn't a factor. So, so a it's all good. That's all, so it's yeah. all good. I hope that's a long answer to your question. I love it. I love. I liked it. You know what I mean? It was a good. <laughs> I, I thought it was very well written, and I liked the character. And so let's go, man. Let's do it. I, I like it. I liked it. What else you want? Uh, yeah. <laughs> let's bring on someone who was uh, instrumental, uh, from what uh, Steve said, in bringing you on to the film. She's the she was one of the casting directors for the film, uh, and uh, and a friend of yours, I believe, in in Italy and food and in love. Uh, Karen P. Morris, how are you? Hi there. Hi, Hi Joe. It is so good to see your face. Thank you so much oh, for coming on today. Oh no, no, no. My pleasure. No, my pleasure. You're, 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 you're a couple of the good guys. So you know, happy to do it. <laughs> the uh, the Italy thing that John is talking about. I don't know if you remember this, Joe, but between season one and season two of Joan of Arcadia, yeah. um, Steve and I ended up going to um, Italy for a right. trip, and. Didn't think anything about that. But when I came back and we were at our first table read for season two, I was talking about it to somebody and you came in and you were like, you were very upset with me. You're like, Karen, you went to Italy and you didn't talk to me and you didn't get my recommendations and you didn't get my, <laughs> yeah. where you're supposed to go. And I was like, I didn't know I had that relationship with you, Joe, but next time I will totally call you. Yeah, well, go there you go. Italy. Well, the magic. The magic word was Italy, you know what I mean? You I know, know. And it, it, it is. had me I mean, in Italy, I'm, you know. I'm I'm half Italian myself, and so it's it's, it's a special place to be. But uh, yeah. yeah. Well, well Karen. Great. Well, next time, next time you go, you know, definitely. We'll 
<laughs> you you were one of the producers on the film, as Karen, as well as as one of the casting directors here. What was the process for you as you were working with Steve, the director, and you know bringing on Joe Mantegna and being in charge of bringing in all these actors who've gone on to do wonderful things and certainly still uh, booking uh, work left and right? What was the process like for you as you were going through all this, getting all these people together? Well, it was interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, part of what Steve and my relationship is and was at the time was we uh, we see very much similarly when it comes to art. We have a lot mm. of um, uh, shared tastes, shared um, uh, loves of certain films, certain TV shows, certain actors, yes. um, all of that kind of stuff. And so um, when he started writing this, um, it was really fun to watch the process and, and read the different, you know, versions of it and then when we really started um getting serious about it which you know there were there were many many years where we were we would talk about stuff mm -hmm. we talk about stuff but we would never actually do a thing and when we finally decided we were going to do this um i have to actually give some props to um jamie rudowski yes. my co-casting director because um we sent it to her um pretty early in our friendship and we were walking our dogs one day and she said karen we have to make this movie we have to we have to do whatever we need to do to make this movie. She's like, this is such a good movie. We need to make this movie. And so I think it was partially her um, enthusiasm that really spurned us on to actually take the leap of faith mm. to do it, because it is a it is a big thing to throw your life up in the air and mortgage right. your house and, and do the kind of things that we did here. And then the, you know, the next thing we started doing is the three of us would sit down and spitball ideas and. Part of that was, you know, who we might have access to. But part of that was, hey, dream scenario. Who do you want for this thing? Right. And Joe happened to check two of those boxes simultaneously, which was an absolute, you know, dream for all of us is the mm -hmm. fact that I actually had a way to reach out to him that was more personal than just reaching out to an agent. Um, but also knowing that when Steve was writing it in a lot of ways, there was definitely a feel in his mind of someone. And, and you know, Joe fits that bill so beautifully. Right. And so... Okay. It was a similar kind of thing. And then like, like Steve had said earlier, Jamie um, has such a, an amazing breadth of work um, and she does a lot of theater as well as film and television, which I just, that's one of the things I fell in love with her about her when I met her yeah. um, because theater is very special to me. It's very special to Steve. I know it is for you, John. And yeah, obviously I know sure. it is for you, Joe. So those of us who are based and, or sort of are grounded in the theater, it's a, it's a different um process in a lot of ways and mm. so we tried to imbue those ideas into what we were doing with the assistants we tried like steve said with the parties and we really tried to find ways to create the camaraderie that comes out of rehearsal periods and yeah. things like that and even though in films you don't tend to get that kind of stuff we wanted to try to make that happen and because we had such an amazing group of kids um playing those roles they all just went with it and they all bonded really beautifully. And, and so, you know, yeah, fun. shows on screen. That's for sure. Steve. Uh, Joe, Joe, I had a question for you and I know obviously yeah. we made this movie a long time ago for me and for Karen, it was literally years of our life for you. It's like four or five days. So if you don't, <laughs> if you don't remember, I totally understand, but I know one of the big things you were excited about in doing the film was getting to act in a scene with Stacy Keach. And I was wondering if yeah. you have any memory of that. Yeah, I, I do. And, and because that's another one of the great things of being in this business is that uh, I suppose it's like being an athlete or a rock and roll star in a way that sometimes you get to meet your, you know, your people within your peer group that you've kind of admired in your life, you know, 
And so, I mean, I think of, of Stacey Keach and I think of when I was an acting student back at Goodman School of Drama back in the 60s. I mean, you know, Stacey Keach was one of those theater guys that you kind of thought of like, wow, God, he did, you know, Indians. He's like, you know, in other words, he was just one of those guys that you thought to yourself, uh, boy, wouldn't it be nice to have a career like he's the track he's on? You know what I mean? So they get the opportunity. And, and also it's a testament to like, okay, these are the kind of people you want to work with. I mean, I remember when I worked, I became very close friends with Peter Falk because uh, we wound oh, up wow. touring. We toured the play Glengarry Glen Ross, the national tour for oh, like six wow. months after oh, the Broadway run. So good. You know, he played Shelley Levine, you know, wow. just for the just for the to tour. You know, he never did it yeah. with me on Broadway. But uh, uh, when we did the national tour, he was Shelley Levine. So for six months we toured and we became very close right up to his passing. Mm. Uh, but one of the things I'll never forget, he, he, he he's, you know, among many things we talk about, he said to me, he goes, Joe, when given the opportunity, always work with the good guys, work with the talent. They won't, they'll, ne they'll never hurt you. You know what I mean? And I mean, and, and in his way, I mean, and, and this is, he's, he's right. I mean, in a sense, whether it's a director, whether it's your fellow actors, whatever, you, if you're working with people who've already proven themselves for a certain quality, you know, mm -hmm. he, he's right. The odds are they're not going to hurt you because, because they, 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 you're, you're of a like mind. Hopefully, you hopefully you think of yourself as being, you know, uh, up to their their level, and and you're gonna you know, make music together. Mm -hmm. And so it was a little of that, you know. I was impressed with that. And and, and the other thing is, I got to say, just and it's even more so for me today. I mean, I have an assistant who you know. I mean, you met my assistant yeah. Dan Ram back then. Mm. September 11th will be not only the 20th anniversary of 9-11, but yeah. it'll be the 20th year that he's been my assistant. Wow. I mean, so he's been with me for 20 years. And ironically, I hired him at Taxi on, on, on uh, September 10th. It was the night before I had to go wow. do a press thing. Uh, I had to do a press thing on the Anaheim. And he had, we had talked about him perhaps working for me. I'd never had an assistant in my life, but I was just getting ready to start a new series called First Monday with James Garner or oh, yeah. Court, and I, I was the lead and, and I knew I was going to be inundated with work. And so I thought, wow, an assistant. Yeah, and I, and I, I've never had, I've never had a publicist manager or any of that. I used to keep my circle very small, but I thought I might really need help. So I said, you know what? So on the way in the limo, I said, ride with me in the limo out to this press thing. We'll talk about it there and back, which we did. And it was the night of September 10th. Wow. 2001 so that night i on the way back after we've been talking in the car both ways i said you know what let's give it a shot we'll start tomorrow tuesday and let's see what goes because that was supposed to be my kind of like my first day at work right, on right. first monday well then the world exploded that morning and uh <clears throat> of course he called me and says wow well, hey yeah i know i know okay well we'll have to put this on hold for a day or two <laughs> yeah. but um but he's still there, and he's turned into an incredible assistant in the sense he produces a he produces his own show on the Outdoor Channel now. Oh wow! Uh, he's really blossomed into an incredible talent on his own, and 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 I, and I think back on that film and the and the, and what was what storyline and this and that and the relationships and all that, and it's just kind of it, it has a personal kind of connection for me. Yeah, because you well, groomed Jack to become successful, and he does in the movie. Now you've groomed Dan to become successful, and he's done. Yeah, I can see the connection. Well, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, well, it also shows that you are exactly not the kind of boss that we see in the movie. <laughs> well, because... you don't want to play yourself. Because Dan no, wouldn't have stuck around so long. <laughs> uh, you don't want to play yourself. You want to always play against type, you know what I mean? So <laughs> I, I, I think that's such a great story. Uh, my, my dad, who is an optometrist in San Francisco, he... Um, 
he had people that worked for not only do you have people that worked for him for decades but that multi-generations so hmm. my the daughter of my dad's receptionist she worked for my dad it all the families all came it was just part of the family your story just reminds me of that and that's that's so much the kind of person i want to be you know yeah. i want to i want to i want to create a situation where people feel good because so much I see, I'm sure you've seen far more than me. So much of Hollywood creates a lot of situations where people feel really shitty, you know, and I don't, I don't want to be around. Yeah, no, there's no need for that. I mean, I mean, I I always took being number one on the call sheet very seriously for that reason. Cause I'd been, I'd certainly been in many other numbers on a call sheet over my career. But when I got to the point where I would start to be number one on the call sheet, I started, and I learned a lot from like people like Tom Hanks, I did an episode of Bosom Buddies oh, back in oh, the day. Love yeah. that show. Oh, yeah. And I, w- I played this, like, Arab chic. I mean, it was back in the days when, like, you know, ethnically anybody could play anybody and it was okay. You didn't get arrested for it. So I was playing this Arab chic, at a, at, and it was a gambling scene in a casino and, and whatever. So here was Tom dressed, you know, in a dress and doing the stuff he did then, you know, with Bosom <laughs> Buddies. But he was – I'll never forget that at the read-through, that first read-through, he went around the table and said hello and just give warm welcome to everybody at the table, even guys. And I, I mean, I had a few lines in it. It wasn't a big part, but it was a featured role. But but some of the people just had like half a line, and he was just – and I thought to myself, wow, what a classy thing to do, man. Because here you are. You're there for that one episode of a show that's already been on, and you're the new, one of the new guys. You don't know anybody, and you're just hoping nobody yells at you or you get fired. And then, and, and I even remember that first day, we found out we lived in the same kind of neighborhood, and his car broke down. And can I give him a ride home, which I did, yeah, you know, yeah. and then we came, of course, then we wound up doing money pit years later, you know, together. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but I, I learned from that. And I always said to myself, if I ever get to be number one on the call sheet, I'm going to try to follow an example like that. And I've always tried to do that. I think I did that on Joan of Arcadia, and I certainly did it. Definitely. All the yeah, years I, mean, I, I criminal mind. Yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, I, I mean, the fact that you wanted to talk to me about Italy recommendations. Like, well, I, I was, mean, I just think it's I important. Just, assistant. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know? I know, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't mean the job description means nothing to me. I mean, it's, I don't care if it's the guy cleaning the, the ashtrays in, on the set. You know, that's what Steve said is correct. You know, if you set the tone for the people in charge, it all tr- trickles down from there. If, you, if the guy at the very top, the man or woman at the very top is, has a certain attitude, that's, that's, the, that's the parameters you have now set. And you set a bad one. It's all going to be a bad situation and not going to be fun. But if you kind of set it to like, hey, you know what? We're all lucky to be doing what we do. Let's make the best of it. And then if that trickles down, you make it a, a nice experience, regardless of even of the outcome. You know what I mean? Sometimes things don't work out. Well, you hope they do. It does, But at, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. You've, you've made a, a wonderful experience. And then the chips are going to fall where they fall anyway. There's a there's a great line Ocean's Thirteen where George Clooney says to Pacino's character he says there's a code amongst guys who shook Sinatra's hand and you broke that code. There's a way of doing things, <laughs> there you right? Go. Martin I'm Sheen shaking his hand too. Yeah, yeah. See, there you go. So you understand, yeah. Well, uh, Joe, we're at the twenty minute mark. If you want to stick around, your camera we're going to bring in. I, you know, I do have members. to go. Actually, okay. I was going to say I got to I'd run before five thirty anyway. But I'm glad I was able to make it. Uh, Thank you so and, much. These are two really, really, yeah. honest to God, you're, you're, you're both special people, honest to God. I love the Morrises. And so, uh, uh, but I would have done that if, even if they weren't, I, because I like the material, I would have done this film. So it wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't doing them. It wasn't because I was just doing them a favor. Right. I mean, you know what I mean? Uh, it, it was a good project. I'm glad I did it. And it made it, it, icing on the cake. It was that these two people uh, were behind it. So yeah. I love you. And, and love Joe, you both. Joe, I, will, 
Joe, Go I want ahead. you to know that Joan of Arcadia and the assistants are probably two of my pinnacle parts of experiences in. Oh, yeah. The, no, for the, me, the I mean, Joan of Arcadia. You know, I, I had a development deal for CVS for Joan of Arcadia. You may or may not have known that. No. So I, 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 I they, CBS came to me because of the success of the miniseries, The Last Don. Uh, yeah, they I came was, to I me because it had done well. It had done so well. They came to me and says, "Look, we want to give you a development deal. We'll get, we'll send you a million scripts, and whatever you want, we'll greenlight, basically." And I read all these scripts, and the one that I read, I see oh, it's a thing called Joan of Arcadia. I went, "Oh, this is great." The one thing I want to do, the least is. <laughs> like an 18 year old girl and I'm going to be, I'm not the lead. It's not, you know, it's my development deal, but, but I thought this is the one I got to do. This is the, this is, should be on television. So let's do it. And I said, I was involved in all the casting for Amber, for, for uh, Mary Steenburgen, for J Jason Ritter, everybody. Jason I mean, and I are still in touch. I like, I, well, I have so many contacts from the people that I just still love and, and reach out to all the time. Well, I mean, I love them all. This was part of Joan of well, Arcadia. You know I love I mean? them all. And to this day, I'm, I'm so, so I'm glad we at least did the two seasons we did. Cause I still think it was important television and needed to be done. And I'm proud that we did it. But anyway, you were all part of it. Thank you. I'll see you guys again, I'm sure. John, very nice thank you. you. Thank you very My much, pleasure. Mr. Montaigne. Take care. All righty. Bye-bye. Wow, what a, great, uh, what a great situation to have Joe Montaigne uh, here he's, hanging out with us. He's just the best. Yeah. best. He's well, just the best. <laughs> let's bring on two of the assistants uh, and uh, the DP. First, let's bring on uh, one of the actresses that's been on our show, Steve. She is incredible. Way back when at the nascent stages, is that what they say, of, of our podcast. Uh, Kathleen Early is here as well. Hi, Kathleen. Hi. Yay. Yeah. The, the great Sarah Bryant. And I, I hope I say this right. Ta Tate Hanyok is also here. Hi, Tate. Tate. Hi. Oh, excitement. <laughs> Uh, and as we said, the DP of the film himself, Aaron Torres, is joining us. So, all um, a full house here uh, as we all get together uh, and you all relive the yes. So, let's start. I want to ask both uh, uh, Tate and Kathleen a question. I mean, it's been what like twelve years since this film came out, but we've we've kind of revi I revisited it uh, this morning again. I watched it uh, this morning in bed, just thinking about all the different. Oh, easy, baby. Easy, sweetie. Uh, all the different things that uh, happen in the film. When you look back on the characters now, when you look back on the experience, what's the things that stick out for you from the experience? Because all of you have gone on in this cast to do some incredible work. What was it like, including this young upstart, Joe Mantegna? What was it like to do all the things that you did and, and, and look back on the film now? I can let you go first, Kathleen. I feel like you're more the leader of the group. <laughs> but I have um, it. I hadn't watched it in a long time, and I watched it today. And oh. um, I, my ten-year-old was sitting with me when I first turned it on and watching the very beginning, and he's kind of sitting there watching it, and he's watching, and then the credits come up, the opening credits, and he goes, mm. "You're in this." He had seen me on screen multiple times already. Yeah. No, nothing like your children to bring you back to reality, right? And so I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm in this. But I didn't say you've been watching me. It was like, yeah, yeah, it's, you know, something I did. But in looking back now and 
I don't know. It, it's, uh, I was thinking about to, and, and hearing you talking with Joe, Karen, about how all the kids, and I was like, oh my God, we were kids. Yeah. We were the kids. <laughs> and I thought we just all had so much, um, and there was a word that I came up with earlier, like just thinking about it that I, I'm not touching on now, but it was like this potential and all mm. of this anticipation for what was coming in our lives. Um, and I don't know that any of us would necessarily know how they would look today but as actors, right. but as the characters, I think it's the same thing, you know, because we were very much in that part of our lives as actors, as the characters were. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there's all this anticipation and hope and uh, a certain amount of anxiety about what is the moment that we're in and what does it create down the line? Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, I love my character because she was incredibly idealistic and mm -hmm. I felt for my character because she liked so many um, kind of let go of some of that because of what she felt. I think she owed to her friends or what she wanted, not just for herself, but also for everyone and felt like, well, that's how the business works. I guess I have to do it that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, it's hard because it's, you know, we hear that a lot. Well, this is how the business works. You just have to, you have to do it this way. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. And you can do it that way. But at the end of the movie, she's like, I'm going to do it. We can do it this way. We can do it. We can do it the way we want to do it. Um, I, I, one of the things that was so great when all of you came in and really for so many people that were auditioning uh, all is people came in and was like, this is me. I, this, mm. I had this happened to me. Like people related so much to, because you know, because it was me, it, you know. It was, it was both was great and us. terrible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah uh, Tate, Tate, will you answer that question as well? Like, what do you think now when you look back on Alex and her journey in the film as well? You know, you go from editor to wearing that sexy red dress to kind of being like this inspiration at the end. Like, we can do this. Yes, let's go do this. When you look back on it, do you also share Kathleen's point of view? That's like, wow, I remember feeling that way about the movie business. Or I remember that time in my life feeling so optimistic or or, or uh, idealistic, rather, about yes, what happened. Yes, to all the things. And also, hello, everyone, to see your faces. This is so <laughs> I have to say, this project is still so near and dear to my heart in a way where like I've recently had like a resurgence in my career in other areas as a writer. And I go into these meetings with executives and sometimes I talk about this movie as if like, I'm like, I know what you are doing with. Cause I was in this movie where I play essentially you, you right now in this room. And, and it's like, I feel this connection to the material so differently now because I'm sitting in like a different seat of the business. Um, but all that to say, this was such a special time and moment in my life. Um, it still is like something I look on with so much reverence, like such a nerd. Um, I just have so much love for this, these people and this project. And um, I you know, popped in at the top uh, here and hearing uh, Karen and Steve talk about the efforts they were making. It's like they had us doing murals and things that we would do in theater to kind of create mm. community. And so for me, it was the first time I'd had a film experience that felt very much like my roots of theater and family building. And so to, you know, to pivot a little on that, a lot of what I have witnessed in the business is like the, the film school camps, like people go to film school and they have their camps of people. 
And as an actor who kind of came out and was sort of finding their way and didn't have a camp of people, I was always sort of like guest starring in other camps. And then <laughs> when we had this movie, it was like my fake self who was in a film school with these people now had this community and parents continued it like through dinners and birthdays and all the things through the years. And I like kind of started to feel like I was part of some fake film school that I never actually like went to. Um, <laughs> so I really, really loved that aspect of it. That's more of a personal answer, but as far as like the character and all, um, I, I think I remember reading the script and being like, this is the coolest thing I've ever read. It's like Ocean's Eleven, but like, you know, the stuff I like, <laughs> I'm interested in. And so I remember just being so excited. It's like when you feel like, you know, those moments where you watch something and you feel seen or it's like, it's for you. It's speaking to you in this way. The stakes were so high and they were, they were so high. Like us getting these auditions, it was such a big deal. And, and all of that importance was and, uh, you know, like looking back now, it, I, one thing I love about like young adult stories or sort of like firsts and firsts in career is like the stakes are so high. And I think we all remember those moments in a different way in our lives. Mm. And so for me, a lot of this still feels very like real. Obviously, we look mm. like that is <laughs> how nice that was. <laughs> but <laughs> it's it's so fun to have had this and um and as i mentioned like now i'm more on the writing side of things and recently produced uh two movies this last year and karen and steve like were kind of my without knowing this like they set the tone mm. for the kind of set that i would want to have and mm. it was like i've had a lot of different kinds of experiences but i was like this is what i want for the sets that i'm involved in and it was so long ago, but it was like, I knew that if we were having that feeling on a day that I was having when I was working with them, I was like, okay, we're doing good. It wasn't every day that we could achieve it, but we tried. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's I, also evidenced by how much we're all still friends, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. we still, I mean, I remember during the pandemic, there was one day I got a text from you and then outside my door was a bag of grapefruits and oranges and lemons and a bunch of recipes for cocktails. It was, I think, Mother's Day. And Tate was like dropping little bags to her lady friends for Mother's Day, living pieces of fruit from her trees in her yard of women that she wanted to uplift. And it was just so special. And then, you know, uh, Kathleen's got two two boys now, and one of her boys is almost exactly the same age as Jack's, our boy. And so they've had many dates together over the years. So that even solidified our friendship even more because now our boys are friends. And yeah, I mean, it's just amazing how these things can just keep going. Yeah. So I, I want to ask, uh, uh, Aaron has been so quiet, but I, I, I want to ask Kathleen a question first. And then I want to, because Kathleen, it, it came up multiple times as John and I were talking, is the plot point of you and of your character and Gary Green. Mm. I wonder if the, how you feel about that today versus how you looked at it when you did the part. Um, I will go back to watching it again just a while ago and got to the point in the movie where she's listening to this voicemail being left and just sitting on the floor of your kitchen and right. crying because she's just feeling the weight of the conflict of what she did versus how she wanted to live versus this, mm. you know, how people see her and, you know, apologies being made to her, but feeling the need to apologize, I think. Anyway, and so I'm watching this, and at this point, 
Now the 10 year old's been watching it off and on the whole time. The five year old's been around, but playing Legos kind of out of eye shot. There were times when I was like, oh crap, I didn't realize the language was like this year. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I like that you said, oh crap, I didn't realize the language was like this And so at one point the, the five year old has come over and he's next to me, he's looked up the TV and then he looked, he's like, why is she crying? And I don't, I'm like, does he know that's me? I don't know if he, and at one point he had said earlier, he's like, mama, that, that girl, did you do her voice? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Enzo, I did do her voice. <laughs> um, and and cause he, he, wasn't really, he wasn't really watching it at that point, but he came over and he saw the part where she's sitting on the floor crying. And he kept like, after that, he went away and he played for me. He came back, he goes, why is she crying? Mama, why is she crying? Why was she crying? And I was like, oh, <laughs> how do I explain this to my five-year-old? I said, you know, she did something she shouldn't have done and she feels really bad about it. What did she do? And I was like, oh, shit. Um, <laughs> I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, you know, Enzo, she just she did something she's not, she realizes that she doesn't feel good about. And, and then I was like, and she lied to somebody. Because that's, I was like, she lied about who she is, why she's there, all these yeah, things. I said, she exactly. liked it. Because I was like, that's words he'll understand, you know, and that's a, kind of a more concrete thing than saying she did something she shouldn't have done. I was like, she lied. Anyway, um, I mean, I think we all do things we regret and we make mistakes. But watching it today, I was like, oh, man, I, you know, you just want to shake somebody or if you see something about to happen, go, no, 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 don't do it. But right. It was absolutely necessary for telling the story. It's like every, and you're, I'm watching this series of things happen that characters are doing. They're all kind of like, did a, uh, 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 but you know that this is part of the movie where they're doing all those things that are going to, you know, it's all catalyst and mm -hmm. growth and change. Did I want it to happen? No. Watching it, I didn't <laughs> want it to happen. Uh but in your twenties, you do things. You, do you navigate things, yeah. Yeah, I so, don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> it, it, it was a it fantastic answer. Okay. Um, uh, so, Aaron, first of all, it's great to see you. Um, same, same. Aaron. Yeah, Aaron hasn't changed at all. <laughs> I, I just grew the hair back after the pandemic. So it's been short, long hair. Long hair so, coming back. We've all wow. got long hair now. Yeah, right? So. Yeah, we all have long hair now. <laughs> so, um, so first of all, for people out there who want to get a job, Aaron, I want to tell you how Aaron got hired on this movie, is I was interviewing a bunch of DPs, and you look at people's reels, and you look at their resumes, and I didn't have a good DP that I really wanted to work with, and I saw Aaron's reel, which was really uh, interesting and somewhat strange, and he came into our meeting, and he had a lookbook for the film and he'd gone through the entire film scene by scene and said, this is, it had pictures from other movies. This is how I want you. I, I would approach your film. You know, it was like Stacy Keats showing up with a dog-eared copy of my script is that it was so clear that, and to be cl clear, Aaron was right. Yeah. I mean, like so much of the scenes, I remember you had scenes from fight club for uh, the office scenes because we wanted that desaturated look. Um, and so, so first of all, that was great. And what I'm curious about, Aaron, was there a specific way you approached this film? I know it was a long time ago, but coming in as the DP, and we didn't know each other, was there a specific way you approached this? 
Well, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I think getting back to initially me pitching you, right? Like, and I think that's like something for other cinematographers too, which is like, if you're trying to get a job, like doing the research is, is huge. And I just remember at the time really reading the script, really loving the script. And I'm like, I want to do this movie, you know? And um, for me, it's like, how do you know what to do unless you've done the research? And whether that's acting or cinematography or, or directing, you have to spend the time, right? And so I just remember spending a lot of time, well, what is this scene, scene about? Like, what does it feel like? Like, and then, you know, you can, once you're asking yourself with the question of what it feels like, then you have to translate that into some technical aspect, right? So it's like, what lens choice are we using? Is it is it the scene feel like, is it moody? Is it dark? Is it cool? Is it hot? You know, like, is it contrasty? Is it desaturated? You know, and so, I mean, all of those things, um, you know, are part of the process. And so, uh, I mean, I don't remember, I remember doing the lookbook for you, but I don't remember exactly what I put in there, you know, because it was a long time ago. It's a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> but I've done that other for other movies and and consistently, that's usually been how I've gotten my first chance with a new director, you know? Um, so it, it, I found that that's actually super helpful in terms of like showing that you're prepared. And sometimes you misfire. Like sometimes you say, Oh, I see this. And they say something totally else. And, and then maybe they don't choose you, but maybe that's okay because you might not have been seeing the same thing anyway. You know, mm. um, um, I'll, I'll explain a little how Aaron and I work together. So, so, mm -hmm. so I had written the script and then I storyboarded the whole movie by myself, not because I was going to use the storyboards, but because it helped me transition from like a writer's brain to a director's brain. Like I had to stop being the writer. Um, and then when Aaron and I started to meet, we literally, I don't even know if you even looked at those storyboards I did. No. It didn't really matter. Um, <laughs> They're still up here. I still have them all in here. I'm so oh, glad wow. Aaron is um, being. Oh, is that wow. from the movie? Oh. Yeah, I still have like some of the old sort, like the, the top wow. pictures so, and so, stuff like that. So before we shot, Aaron and I in pre-production for, for weeks, I think, walked through every single scene. And we walked through the blocking on what we thought it was going to be. Not that right. we knew because some we didn't have locations. And we walked through kind of how we wanted to do it. And I am not a cinematographer. I'm a, not a good – my weakest skill. Oh. My, okay. I think like an editor. So I knew storytelling-wise what I wanted, that I needed to see this reaction or I needed to – you know. but I didn't – so I would say, well, like, what if we put the camera here to look at this? And everyone would go, what if it's here? You know. And I would go, oh, well, that's, that looks good. <laughs> and that was the process throughout. And it literally, every location we got to, Aaron and I are walking through being every actor, being the camera until we, because when you don't have any money or not a lot of money and you're under real time constraints, yeah. you can't be figuring stuff out on the day. Mm. Particularly for Aaron and I, we had to be on the same page of what we were trying to accomplish for every day or we wouldn't have made our days. Yeah. yeah. And, and and the pre-production was kind of grueling, honestly. Like, I can't remember. I, mean, I spent weeks, I feel like, in your little tiny office. Yeah, you know, right going here. Each right page. here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Weeks, you know, and, 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 you know, you sit down and you just hash it out and you're like, okay, well, what is it? You know, like, what does it look like? Where does the camera go? How many angles do we need? And it's kind of, it, it can be exhausting, but also you know, it's like building muscles, right? Those are the muscles you need to actually do the heavy lifting when you're on set. And, you know, without it, you, you're going to be weak. And, and, and that's what you don't want, you know? So like, hopefully we've already had our, like our, our conversations about style and maybe even disagreements sometimes about what we think sure. the scene should be before we, we get there. And then it, it's going to change again, right? It, it changes 
you know, like when we get to location and then once we see the acting, it changes again. And then, you know, depending on my resources and time, I'm, I might be like, hey, maybe I could get a dolly shot over here or maybe I can sneak a slider movement. And then I'm pitching, right? And then I'm hoping I can sell Steve on something he likes and, it, and it's still in tune with the movie, you know? Well, well, this is always the, one of the things about being a director is everybody wants more. And Aaron wanted a steady cam and Aaron, you know, and like and the production design, but there's some real crackling from someone. I don't know where it's coming in. If you, are you guys hearing that too? Yeah. Um, I don't know if some, you guys, someone wants to try to mute your. Oh, might've been Tate. Might've been maybe Tate. it was Tate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's always, you know, production design, they want mon- more money for the set and, you know, someone wants more, more time or more. And so it's a constant, the only person who really knew everything well i won't say i knew everything i'm in the middle of all of it so it's Mm -hmm. like okay if i give aaron that then i have to take this away from over here or or someone might know that one of the actors is having a bad day i know that but but the ad doesn't know that and so then you know it's trying to negotiate all of that stuff and aaron was always pushing for his department which is what his job is Mm -hmm. to make Mm -hmm. the movie look better you know right because because the hard part is you never want to look back and say that I mean, you can't be inflexible, but you also you want to look back and you don't want to say you just finished the day. You want to see you got visually the movie. You want to you want to be telling the story appropriately. And sometimes that can be challenging. Like sometimes, you know, you sort of give up some things and you were like, OK, I'm trying to help. And then later on, you're like, "Ooh, maybe that wasn't the best call. And then other times you fight really hard for something. And then you're like, that was a great call. Like, mm-hmm. for instance, um, we had the, the, the rooftop scene, Steve, if you remember. Right. And, and this was, sure. this is, we, oh, we remember the rooftop scene well. Yeah. And we really, is, that, is that near the beginning of the film? That one where they're having yeah. the conversation and everything? Okay. The party, the tequila, yeah. The, the party. tequila moment? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and we really wanted to see the, you know, the, the skyline behind them, you know? But we're on, I think it's the second floor. Of, it was like a parking lot or something. And yeah. I'm like, I'm like, Steve, there's like nowhere for me to put a light. Like I'm on a rooftop. Like what am I going to do? You know, I'm like, I need a balloon light. I need a balloon. I got, I need a balloon. I need it. I need, I need it. it. <laughs> and that those things are not cheap. You know, those are expensive. And, but ultimately it's like, you know, look, we got to be able to see everybody. We need flattering light. You want to be able to see the skyline. I can't be seeing cables and see stands and all sorts of stuff. We want to be able to move around and, and be able to kind of like tell the story fast. We only have a certain amount of time. I, don't, I can't put condors up there. You know, I don't, we don't have the budget for that. And and that was one of those things that, you know, we had to talk about because it's not, it's, it's not cheap. Right. And, um, and you were right. You know, and, it, and that yeah. was, and that scene looks great. I think that's the really probably does. the prettiest scene mm-hmm. in the film. Um, it was also one of the things that we were determined at the time was that it was an East side of LA movie is that, and this mm. was before, like just at the very, very beginning of downtown kind of becoming an interesting place but no. because we live on the east side i really wanted to show this realm of los angeles that really wasn't seen and that mm-hmm. rooftop because uh, what one of the things that happened is we had a location scout who was insane and so we fired her almost immediately <laughs> and so really i was the main location scout too yeah yes yeah, um, was, he was out scouting locations uh, a, a lot oh And I found this parking lot on top of a three-story law office. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, the rooftop of this parking lot is the most amazing view of downtown. And we went to this person, and they had never had a a movie 
work there. And that's really good because people in LA will charge you a lot for a location mm -hmm. because they know they can get a lot. If you're in the middle of Minnesota, mm -hmm. they'll go like, oh, you want to make a movie at my restaurant? That's fantastic. Come on and do it. Here, let me pay LA. you to do a movie. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, make, I'll make your crew food. Uh, and Ellie's not yeah. like that. And I think she she had charged us a pretty reasonable rate. And then it was right when I think it's Mission Impossible 3 was shooting in downtown L.A. Mm -hmm. And they took over all of Second Street, like two miles wow. of of Los Angeles. And they paid her and just to just to have a, a, a chasing go by. They weren't using her building at all. And they paid her like five thousand dollars or something. And then she came back to us right the day before we had to shoot and said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to give me three times as much money. Oh my God. So, yeah. Because now she found out she could make a lot of money from this. Wow. And then it was, and this was, you know, that's, that's dealing with making a movie and we had to negotiate <sighs> with her and come up with a new price because that's what it was, you know, like we are not mission impossible. Yeah. We're not, you <laughs> don't understand. We need the script. money. Tate, Tate, you've you, you mentioned you've you're, you've produced what from what I'm looking at IMDb, I'm, I'm correct here. Sex Appeal, Love and Baseball, these two films coming up that you've produced. You're also like a seasoned improviser. You've been in a million commercials. You've done so much. Um, is there a move for you as you're maybe looking at this? How Steve has directed this also throws himself into that scene with you. You know, watching the editing going on there with that scene. Is there an idea of yours to maybe at some point move into directing yourself, maybe, or is, oh, yeah. is producing and cool. writing the limit? No, the goal is directing. Um, but I have found that I mean, and I'm sure Steve can speak to this. It's like sometimes you just got to create something mm. to be able to put yourself in that position, and because I'm not you know, somebody who came from a film school or, you know, have, you know, necessarily the, like the avenues. Well, sometimes when you're an actor first, people are like, oh, aren't you cute? You have a script. That's so cute. Oh, you want to direct now? That's so cute. <laughs> so I feel like I get a lot of that. It's also my personality that brings it on. But um, I do have like a very creative brain and, you know, deep desires to direct. And so the um, Love and Baseball was more of a an exercise in producing uh, so that I could be like, okay, do I have this, you know, can I manage these positions? And I also really like, because I come from theater roots, I like to know what everybody does and how they do it so that I can have empathy for their job and like also maybe help them help me <laughs> kind of thing. And so that was the sort of the goal with the producing and the sex appeal. I did write it to direct, but it can be kind of hard to get greenlit, you know, sometimes. Mm -hmm. So uh, luckily that movie was greenlit, but I was not also sidebar another time, another podcast, but my <laughs> reps, this is like the worst story ever. Um, but also like everything happens for a reason. So you're like, okay, maybe that's why that happened. But my reps um, did not tell me that I had a pitch to direct. They just said I had a pitch. Oh, to the studio and on part of me is like well they already like the script why would i need to pitch it to him and i kept asking are we sure this isn't a director's pitch it's just a concept pitch like do we know what a concept pitch entails because like, i have a director's pitch no no no. that's going to be in a couple weeks so i show up to a meeting on zoom this is early pandemic there's you know nine executives from hulu and they're all waiting oh. to hear a director's pitch and i didn't have one and oh. <laughs> it was somewhere oh. in my desktop but like it was so it was like my first zoom ever because it was so early pandemic it's like i don't even know how to upload that and haven't rehearsed wow. or anything so pivoted very quickly pulled the improviser string and talked <laughs> 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 a lot immediately got off and was like called my team and was like that was a director's pitch they were waiting for a director's pitch and they were like no 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 it's that's down the line i'm like you guys that was the shot and of course and, you don't wait, wait, but, 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 but but did your reps like go in and fess up to them that they screwed that up like was there any 
Um, I definitely requested that because as many of you know, it's like you get one shot in Hollywood. So it's like, you don't get a chance to sort of, you know, if if that's the impression, it's underwhelming. People like, it's hard to get nine people on a call. They're not going to like do it again. We're up um, six. I mean, that's them we're up six years, words. Yeah. They didn't. If they didn't fess up for that, that's that's the kind yeah, of thing I don't, like. So, I don't so know. Cassie Levine was your agent, is what you're saying. <laughs> <Cassie> <laughs> <Levine>. <laughs> so, so I'll just, I, just want to. <laughs> I, I, I just want to jump in. I have such a strong memory of Tate's audition, and it, I was just really reminded of it because you're looking. <laughs> you're looking for where magic happens. And Tate mm-hmm. comes in, she does the scene, does a great job of the scene. And then Tate, you started talking and just, it was a long stream of consciousness. And it was so, it was, it was so just Tate being funny. Tate. <laughs> and, 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 and you're talking about how you love the character and, and, and then you walked out and we just turned to each other and it's like, well, she's cast, you know, like it was so, <laughs> it was so obvious that you were the right person. And that's the weird thing about casting is that it's not, people think it's about, we're looking for the best actors and it's like mm. all the actors karen and jamie brought in were great mm-hmm. it's looking for the right person you know the alchemy and, the alchemy between character yeah. and role is yeah. precious and yeah and elusive and and if you see it you you grab it and you hold on to it yeah. <laughs> as tightly as you can but you don't not too tightly you don't want to squash it but well and to echo that you guys had brought i believe it was myself and chris in and then we got to watch you pick everyone else, like to be a part That's of That's right. You were the first two cast. Yeah, you and were the yeah. first two cast. It was so cool to witness that. So what you're speaking at right now, Karen, a lot of times as a young actor, you're kind of like, I should have run my lines five more times and I had it. And if I'd have looked at oh, I should have looked to the left. You know, and it's like those kinds of things you get on yourself for. But really when you step back, it's so much about just like this innate quality that someone has or this essence that plays off of this other essence and this contrast between the essences that fill all of the different colors that we need and the thing and it was really cool to watch everybody yeah. kind of I can I can tell every actor I know till I'm blue in the face that you can be the most fantastic actor you can have the most perfect look you can but that's not necessarily what it is it's about all of these things coming together it could be that the lead is the same color hair that you have and yeah. boom you're out yeah. it could be that you know they 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 don't like your name I mean, like, like there's, it's this the is why I got out. Thing. This is why because... I got out. Yeah, I, can, I can control this world so much easier yeah. than I can control and acting or any of that stuff. Yeah, it's so, it's so, so hard as an advocate for actors to see, yeah. especially my friends, and watch them go, "Oh, I, I screwed that up," and it's like, "No, no, no, you really didn't. You did yeah. great. You did yeah. a fantastic job. It was nothing to do with you. Right. You did the work. You came in prepared. If you do all that stuff, that's all you can do. The rest of it is out of your control. Well, and as, it's the like, sooner you accept that, you'll happier you'll be. So. Yeah, it's, we, it's tough to we, accept. Yeah. When when John and I did The Godfather, and there's just the amount that Coppola had to fight for Al Pacino, mm. and it's oh, not yeah. like and he auditioned every great actor in Hollywood, and it's not like he, yeah, yeah it, it's not like that he thought that De Niro wasn't a good actor. You know, it's that he thought Al Pacino is the right person to play that part. And I will tell a story. I probably shouldn't say this publicly, considering the other podcast that I do. Uh oh. But one Uh-oh. of the people <laughs> submitted for Joe's part for Gary Green because we put out the breakdown. And then we get people submitted. And one of them was William Shatner. William Shatner. <laughs> what? 
and yeah. and I and I was like it, Steve alternate universe yeah. and Shatner. I said it, it, and I love Shatner I mean I'm literally doing a Star Trek podcast I yeah. Captain Kirk is a hero there was it was not even a moment that I considered it and Karen and Jamie were like no that's not the right person for the part and I love we showed him great. we're like look Shatner and it we're like exci- no yeah no it wasn't right and it's not that I don't think Shatner's great I do but Joe Montaigne was right and Shatner wasn't you know. Mm-hmm. Shatner could have been Stacy Keach character, possibly. I think that could have fit a little bit maybe, better, maybe. possibly. Kathleen, you do a lot of audiobooks now. Have you have you kind of walked away from the on camera stuff? Do you feel more satisfaction doing the audiobooks? And are your kids starting to clamor possibly as they enter that age to get up on front of, in front of camera? I think one of them has absolutely no interest. Oh, that's the good. second one, I think. God help us. <laughs> I think in the womb, he was. <laughs> My wife was like, God, he's so dramatic. This is when I was pregnant with him. He's going to be an actor. I was like, don't say that. Um, <laughs> but he's very dramatic. Um, he loves characters he does voices already he's you know he's kind of a little one-man show but I, he doesn't know what it is like thankfully he actually has no idea that that's a thing really mm-hmm. you know he knows that i do auditions like i do a, I, I audition for a lot of animation now which mm. is super fun um so i he knows that i go into a closet and i close the door and then i <laughs> talk to a know, microphone yeah. yeah, that's kind of all he knows. And apparently he knows that I do voices for characters on screen. <laughs> At least oh, that's what he thinks. That makes yeah. sense. He doesn't, I don't think, I still don't think he knows that that was me. But um, <laughs> no, I, I love, I still audition here and there for on-camera stuff. It's just, gotcha. you know, nice work if you can get it. Right, absolutely. Aaron, you've gone on to do a bunch of reality shows uh, as, as, as director of photography. At this stage in your career, in 2009, who are you as a cinematographer when you're making the assistance? Where are you in your experience? Where are you in your process? Where are you? Uh, what are you working out? What are you focusing on uh, at that time that you were trying to hone through the assistance, if there was any? Well, I, I think to Steve's credit, I think this, you know, Steve's film was the first film that was really like a larger opportunity, like a larger budget mm. movie, you know? And so, you know, the other films I'd, I'd made were for considerably less money mm-hmm. um, and we're doing well with the budget we had, right? But this was a chance to actually kind of like level up. I mean, like, you know, getting a chance to work with Jane Seymour and Stacey Keach and Joe mm-hmm. Montana. Oh, you know, like these are like, you know, movie stars you've seen in the movies, right? Like, so it's like, oh, okay. Right. It's my first real film with like really talented actors, you know? And, and, um, and so, uh, you know, I think a lot of it was just trying to put the work in, right? And and then, you know, and you just kind of like do the best you can with the resources you have. And then you you, you hope that that kind of goes out in the world and it finds an audience, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, even looking back at it now with quite a few years of experience down the line, I'm pretty happy with it overall. Like I look at, I was like, you know what? Like, I like the lighting. I, I like it. You know, I like mm-hmm. the camera movement. I, you know, perhaps I might have, I might have, we had a discussion about camera choices back in the day. You know, we were trying to decide between the red camera, which was first coming out. It was brand new. Yeah. 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 It just came out. It was brand new. And the Panasonic HDX 900, which we used. And I'm like, mm, maybe the depth of field of a super 35 millimeter camera system might have like made it feel a little bit more filmic. 
you know, even with the same lighting and everything else. Mm. But there were a lot of problems with the camera back then with it overheating and then data rates and everything else. So, yeah. you know, um, I, I think uh, on my end, I'm just very grateful for the opportunity. And I really love the collaboration of everyone, you know, the, yeah. you know, everyone, everyone who's here right now. I, I'm just I'm very proud of the film. Mm. Um in terms of like how it kind of comes together. You know, I think it's cohesive as a whole, you know. I, I, I agree. I told Steve uh, earlier, and I don't know if you heard, were listening to the show earlier, but I mentioned how my favorite scenes in the film in terms of lighting are mm -hmm. all the scenes with Jane Seymour. The way oh, yeah. you guys captured that yellowishy yeah. golden glow around her without throughout the... I really... Uh, I looked forward to every one of those scenes. There was just such such a enjoyment in the lighting of it all that I was like, wow, they really got that one, th those scenes down pat because it's so uniquely different from the rest of the movie in terms sure. of the lighting it stands out yeah I, I mean you know like i think she naturally brings magic wherever she goes so sure. it's, well, she, she also naturally glows she's a luminous source already that, that jewelry it's incredible yeah, yeah. yeah no but i mean like but i mean there are specific things i mean when you're doing beauty lighting right you know you're using very large sources so we were using yeah much larger sources there. So you get really glorious soft light, a lot more fill, much warmer uh, color tones. We, we might've used a little bit of like, you know, maybe quarter straw or something like that to just kind of, you know, bring that in there. That That is how kind of it looks naturally. It wasn't timed that way. Right. Um, you know, and, and and like anything, you know, they, they talk about, well, what's, what's excellent cinematography? Well, half of it is, is like having fantastic production design, right? Like mm -hmm. that house is gorgeous, you know? And, I think the biggest challenge Steve and I had was like, we have this fantastic house. We have these very talented people. We have an extremely limited period of time. So like, how do we really like make get, get the most out of it? You know, we want her to look good. We want to see that she's in this really luxurious house. How do we show that off? You know? Um, but um, yeah, I mean, really it come, for those things, especially with her, a lot of it's, you know, just large sources, large, large frames to really just soften the light. Um, and we actually had a lot of extensive filtration too. We did a lot of, ex, you know, extensive filtration tests for the movie. Um, and even like, I don't know in this particular scene, but I was easy, even changing the detail, like uh, right. softness mm -hmm. electronically in the camera from shot to shot, which the, the AC thought I was an insane person. So. <laughs> which, which you are. The, we yeah. also had, and yeah. I think, I think Aaron, it was his, your recommendation. We had a fantastic colorist whose name is Phil Azenzer. Well, and yeah. Phil mm -hmm was coloring uh, Lost at the time he wow. was doing the assistance. Wow. And he yeah. was he kept leaving Lost with his with his assistant to come over and do our movie because he was wow. having more fun. And he was <laughs> awesome. And I remember when we got to the Jane Seymour scenes, he's like, oh, I bet you want like a, a classic warm Hollywood look. And 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 what and color correction is, you know, just an amazing other level. Sure. I have one really quick Jane Seymour story that just popped into my brain. You know, I said that I had these meetings with these actors beforehand and I went up to Jane's house in Malibu and it was right after this was, I don't remember what year it is, but Wedding Crashers was like a year or two before. Mm. And Jane's hilarious in Wedding Crashers. Oh yeah. And I'm sitting on a couch with her and you know, she's beautiful and charismatic and has a lot of uh, power, let's say as a human <laughs> And, and I mentioned like, oh, I like Wedding Crashers. And she, I swear to God, she leaned in and she went, you like that? Oh, I bet you like that. And I went, whoa. <laughs> I was like, I don't she know what she was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Jane is not a person yeah. you would want to mess with. No, she, 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 yeah. yeah. Medicine Woman is just a character. 
Um, <laughs> she, is, she is a force of nature. I've met her a couple of times. She is. Uh, we should wrap up here. We've, we've got the two-hour mark. Steve, any final questions for our incredible guests uh, about the film, or should we wrap up here? Um, no, mostly, I just want to thank you guys. As, mm-hmm. You know, like, this was such an important and formative moment in such a special time. Like, financially, did this movie go where I wanted? Career-wise, did it go where I wanted? No, it didn't. In terms of an experience, an artistic experience, I couldn't have wished for anything better. It was so, I, we were surrounded by such great people. The energy on the set was so great. It was unbelievably challenging. I mean, like I've never worked at that hard in my life, but boy, it was worth it. So thank you. Definitely. Thank you guys. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Tate. And thank you, Karen. I'm going to let you all go now. Thank you for taking the time. We appreciate that. You guys no. want to promote anything or say anything or are you all good? Oh yeah, Tate, Tate, plug Tate, your movie. You, you I, I like everyone go watch the assistant. Steve, where is it now? It's oh, right here on our YouTube channel. YouTube yeah, channel. Yeah. It's, okay. it's, okay. it's for free on the Cinephiles YouTube channel. Yeah. I got it, it, you could pay for it on iTunes, but I don't make any money. Karen and I get we get nothing. Okay. So <laughs> might as well watch but, it Tate, on YouTube for free. Tate, you had something at a festival yesterday, well, right? Yeah, we just had our world premiere of Love and Baseball. It was pretty funny. So That's yeah, awesome. hopefully That's we've awesome. got we've already got interest for distribution. We'll see how it goes. But that was a really <laughs> killer festival for anybody out there looking for one to submit to. Definitely highly recommend Dance of the Fun. Okay. And, and on my end, even though I've done yeah. like a lot of reality television, there's something I shot with Marie Kondo that's coming out on oh, Netflix. Nice. So that'll be coming out. So that's a high-end reality thing, you know. So doing that cool. stuff, but I still love features, guys. So <laughs> I'll shoot the hell out of it. You know, like uh, you know, like he's not lying. Gorgeous. He'll shoot the hell out of it. Do you go to your equipment and go? Thank you. Oh, I don't yeah, know if yeah. I, what I feel about it. Okay, thank you. Absolutely. Uh, all right, uh, let's let, let everybody go. Thank you all so much for thank joining. You. Steve and I will wrap up. Much love to you uh, all, and it's great seeing you again for sure, Kathleen and uh, uh, Karen. Bye. Me too. Bye. Bye. All right. There's everybody here, Steve. Uh, fun, fun uh, conversation. Certainly was great for, uh, well, let me switch us around. It was great for uh, to see Joe Mantegna. Great to see uh, all the wonderful people who came on. Tay, Kathleen, Aaron, uh, Karen as well. Uh, and answering some of the questions from the patrons and answering some of the questions in the chat as well. Any final words as we wrap up this discussion of the assistance and a little bit of Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear? So uh, first, I'm going to start where go back to where I started. Thank you, John, for being willing to do this. I really appreciate it. It felt, you know, people have been asking about these films since we've been doing the cinephiles and answered some questions. And it felt really good to just kind of put a capper on it in a way and to, Mm. to, to return back to this time in my life, even though there's some pain involved with this story as well. None of that has to do with the movie. It's something I'm still as much as I have criticisms of it as you do. I don't think it's a perfect film. I'm really, really proud of it, you yeah. know? And so being able to revisit it with you and being able to revisit it with some of the people that are fans of the cinephiles, it's been really, really great. I, pre- well, I hope, really, really appreciate it. I hope you felt we did it justice over these two hours. I feel like we had some really great conversations about all of it and about your process as well. Uh, so it was a joy to do that with you, brother. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, thanks to Joe Mantegna. Thanks to Kathleen Early. Thanks to Tay. Thanks to uh, um, uh, Aaron Torres. Thanks to Karen P. Morris for joining us for this conversation. And thanks to all of you who sent in. Uh, oh, yeah, we did have one. Sorry, Steve. We had one 
super chat that came through from Matthew Gremlick, who's been dominating the chat. Really enjoyed this conversation. No question, merely grateful for this unusual episode. So thank you, Matthew. Appreciate you saying that. And Doug Developer said, Hi, Steve. As a director, if you had the opportunity to work with a Meryl Streep or Daniel Day-Lewis and they wanted to overrule a few of your directing decisions, how easily would you let them since they are the greatest actors working today? Real quick, what do you say to that? It's so it's really situational. Um, and it, so I, I, the answer is, I, I believe in the, the win win. I believe in the non zero sum game, okay. which is that if they have a problem with what I want to do, and I don't like what they want to do, then my goal is to find something we all want to do to find mm. that means to, to me, that means there's something better. Okay, my choice wasn't quite right. But well, and this is the thing is like, some people see some directors, Literally, when I was in USC in film school, they would talk about, you know, a- actors as props, essentially. Right. And there's an extremely disrespectful way of dealing with actors. I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. I believe in actors as collaborators and actors as the most exciting and talented creators that you're work- working with. And they're the one who has to be in front of the camera. So yeah. um, regardless of who they are, Meryl Streep on down. I want to build that relationship, but I'll tell you one thing. If Daniel Day Lewis or Meryl Streep have an opinion, man, I take that opinion really, really (laughs) seriously because they are literally among the best actors in the history of film. I think that's well said. Uh, All right, let's wrap up, Steve. What's the social media stuff for the cinephiles here? What do we usually say at the end here? Oh, I, there's all sorts of stuff. Follow us on Facebook, Cine underscore files on Twitter, the Cine files podcast on Instagram, subscribe to some of you want to subscribe to us right here on YouTube. Make sure to like this video. You can leave your comments here. It's a great place to interact with all of you. You can subscribe to the show in the other places, Apple podcasts and Spotify and Stitcher. Please leave your reviews on Apple podcasts. They're just so important to the show. You can support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles where you get some advanced knowledge of some of the movies that we're doing. You can ask questions as people did today for our live stream. And if you want to buy the assistance, you don't have to. It's free on YouTube. Enjoy. And I just looked and I'm really bummed out about it. Beyond the Cage of Fear is still on Amazon Prime, but it is no longer free. Oh, so that's a bummer. So okay. it's, you know, three bucks to rent or whatever it is. So sorry about that, but it's a, it's a good shark documentary. It is very much not like shark week. And so if you mm. into that kind of thing, go check that out too. Absolutely. There you go. Uh, and you can uh, follow Steve at SR Morris on yeah. Twitter, follow him at SR Morris one on, yep. uh, on uh, Instagram. You can follow me at the Roka says on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you want to head over to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, of course, my other podcast, the top 10 and the geek, but I know, baby, I know we're almost done. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> it's a well, cute dog, by the way. She is. She's a sweetheart. She, I love her to death, but she's real mad. She's stuck in this room for right now. Uh, all right. Thank you all so much. We'll talk to you next time, uh, next month with a br- another brand new episode of the Cinephiles Live. Be well until then. Peace. Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today we discuss technical diagramming with systems architect Maya. Let's go. First question. You've spent 10 hours slogging over a sequence diagram that should have taken five. Drawing Board or Miro Board? Drawing Board. And if I'm being honest, Miro would probably cut that time down by half. You know, with its AI tools and ready-to-go templates. 
Next, your diagrams become so bulky, it's more complex than the solar system. But all it takes is a few clicks and... It's Miro. I've used those technical shape packs way too many times. And stuff is just digestible on its infinite online canvas. Now, the final question. Everyone's brought in. But you have to make all these tasks all the way over in Jira. But wait, it's done. Is it... Miro, easy with its two-way Jira sync. Easy to plot dependencies. Everyone always knows what's up. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people creating technical diagrams without workflow glitches. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com.